You are listening to Just Here for the Popcorn. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tom. And today we're talking Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, which is, it happened. <laughs> we'll get into it more as we go. Um, do you, What's your experience with at least this movie? Because I know you haven't read the book. Yeah, so no, uh, the later books I have not read. Um, I will get to because the the more I watch these, the more I want to go back and see what what am I missing, and I can also uh, uh, relive the story in a different way. So it's new for me, even though people have been reading this book for fifteen years now. This was the only one I haven't seen in theaters, and I think the summer is coming out. I was in high school. It wasn't like I hated it, but it was just I I don't think. I was as interested in it anymore. You were too cool for Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, me too, being too cool. Um, yeah, it just kind of fell off my radar. It came and went. Like the first five, I, I went to see and enjoyed. I think when I saw the fifth one, I was kind of already starting to not be as like, like super interested in it. Um, and it wasn't until college came around and I started, you know seeing people who are really interested in the, the story, um, you know, becoming friends with them that, you know, I'm going to give this a second chance. And then uh, I, I fell, love, fell in love with it again. Um, this one I've only seen a couple times, maybe one or twice it's been in the background, but I haven't seen, I haven't really paid attention to this one. I knew it's like, oh, it's the one where Dumbledore dies. Spoiler alert, by the way. Yes, we're talking a lot of spoilers in here. So if you haven't seen it, which this 11-year-old film, please go back and watch it. Put a pause on this episode yeah. and go watch Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince and then come back and we'll be here to chat for that. But yes, this episode will definitely be full of spoilers for this one and the future one. And we might even talk about things that happened in the past episodes. Yeah, so it wasn't until watching this with you in preparation for a recording that I actually got to enjoy this story like really appreciate it and now i'm like uh is, is there possible to have a least favorite you know in the series you know but yes there is. yeah is <laughs> you say um uh, yeah i just have to maybe have to see deathly hollows and then i can finally make a, a true ranking uh that in my age you know my advanced age of 28 right <laughs> um what was your experience uh with the books because you've read them read the book and the movie i did read the book and the movie (laughs) so i yeah read all the books i've talked about that before and it got to the point with the later ones where they weren't always just out and ready for me to read which was such a struggle to have to wait uh on those things and especially like after the fifth one everybody knows voldemort's back now what's going to happen and you know, eagerly awaiting this. I was also maybe 14 or 15 at the time and definitely like big Ron and Hermione shipper. I was convinced that this was the book that it was finally going to happen. There were so many hints toward it. And then I got this book and I just, my heart was broken. I hated it. I was so mad at it. And I, I mean, I was a teenager, you know, we talked about the angsty teenagers then the fourth one, I was that angsty teenager after I read this book. Um, so yeah, I was disappointed. I think maybe enough time had passed when the movie came out that I wasn't as upset about it. I mean, obviously still upset, but, uh, yeah, I, I still went to see it. I, 
you said that you don't think it's possible to have a least favorite. This one is definitely still my least favorite, and we can talk about that as we go through. But yeah, I <laughs> that not a lot happens in this one, so we will we'll talk about that. We would also like to say if you like this episode, if you are enjoying it, please um, rate review uh share this episode uh, with your friends uh definitely helps us to kind of get seen and get out there for more people who are just as much movie and tv nerds and popcorn nerds of course as we are so with that do you want to hit us with the popcorn facts then i would love to okay so this film is harry potter and the half-blood prince it's the the sixth film harry potter six year at hogwarts also, his last year at it, you know, year seven is a different year for him. Um, the budget w- was $250 million. So it is the most expensive film. Uh, I think it's even more expensive than Deathly Hallows films. But those films are split up, so maybe that's why. If it was one film, Deathly Hallows might, be, might have been the most expensive film. The box office amount was $934 million. Still really good. But it's actually just a few million behind uh, Order of the Phoenix, the film right before it, like less than 10 million. So it, overall, it's third of the first six Harry Potter films in terms of box office. That first one almost made a billion. Uh, in terms of the year it came out, it was number two in the box office. I'll bring up three and four first, and then I'll go to one because it's such a different film. Uh films three and four which came out around the same time of the year okay uh yeah we're never watching these films uh and uh, i was looking at the and i just rolled my eyes uh i'm sorry if you're a fan of these uh series but we are definitely not ice age dawn of the dinosaurs which was about 50 million behind half-blood prince came out in the same month july came out in the same month july 2009 and the month before that transformers uh Revenge of the Fallen, I think it was their second. Um, that was a hundred million behind Half Blood Prince. I mean, I'm glad it, it beat over those films. You know, I just like, oh, wow, that that's what was popular at the time. Ooh, you know, the number one film came out in December, and this it's it's not even close. The box office, not one billion, not two billion, two point seven billion dollars. And it's for Avatar. And it was, yeah. I fell asleep in that movie. That's my experience with that. <laughs> I liked it. I, I, I mean, but we're not reviewing that today. But it just, it's so amazing how, you know, like you have the Harry Potter films that have been, you know, averaging around 800, 900 million per movie, right? And then we see in the box office, it's kind of in that same area. No other films have been jumping like that. And then 2009 comes along and then you see this film. That's like way, way beyond anything. Question, it it exploded. I mean, I imagine that's, I think that movie took a really long time to make. And I imagine that was a very expensive movie to make. But that was also released in 3D because that's definitely where I saw it. And 3D movies do make me fall asleep. And it was so fucking long. Um, but through it was in 3D. I'm sure it was an IMAX. It was that kind of movie that must have had an impact on the amount of it made right i think when we eventually do the avatar films uh, reflection i want to take a look at the worldwide box office like what countries you know like maybe there was presence you know other countries like russia china like they they really got interested in it so it wasn't just the u.s but uh 
James Cameron has this way of bringing in a lot of box office for his films. You know, Titanic was another big one. Um, yeah, we'll have to get to that at some point. So the director is David Yates, who returning from Order of the Phoenix. Um, the writer, Steve Cloves, he's coming back after he did not do Order, but he did the first four movies. The scores by Nicholas Hooper again, who worked on Order. Production company is Warner Brothers again as it will always be. We watch this on our Ultimate Edition Blu-ray, but uh, as we said in prior episodes, please check out your local library to see if Half-Blood Prince is there. Probably still is. If you don't already own it. I imagine most of you probably own it. Uh, the runtime is two hours and 33 minutes. So in terms of length, kind of the middle of the pack. It was nominated for one Oscar, cinematography, and I, I get it, you know. This film different from the others, has a very visual, distinct look. Like, we're watching this in a dream state or some sort of painting. It's uh, very desaturated, but also it's uh, like certain images are, like, it's it can be bright and like a very con- high contrast between like the lights and the darks. But it, it also has this very faded, earthy tone to it. I don't know if you noticed that during the film, but that's what I, like, it, it just, the film looked different than the others. I feel like the director really tried to make it look different. He even described it described it as he wanted to give it a look based off Rembrandt paintings, and I wanted to look at what those look like. And those also look have that dull look to it, but there's a contrast between the lights and the darks. And it's like a lot of browns and like pale greens. So the release of this film, along the span of time between two Harry Potter movie releases, two years... Which is not too much time, but I guess if you're doing a long series and it's about kids growing up, you want to get those done as quick as possible, right? Uh, so Makes sense, but yeah. imagine being a hardcore Harry Potter fan and having to wait that long between movies. That's rough. I think they do eventually close the gap with the two Deathly Hallows films taking place less than a, a year apart. Uh, but that was interesting because... Order of the Phoenix came out in July 2007. This came out in July 2009. Um, the longest before that was probably like a year and eight months. So the Harry Potter fans probably felt that. That Me waiting for the next one is probably what made me disinterested in it. You know, I had, you know, had moved on at that point. This is the first film in the series to be, fe- to be released after all seven books have been published. Um, Order of the Phoenix, the movie came out one week before Deathly Hallows came out. What a great, uh, like, slate. Summer of 2007 for any Harry Potter fan. What a great uh, marketing idea to have those both around at the same time. Like, Do you remember, like, the summer of 2007 being, like, really pumped up? You have a movie and the book? I'm, I'm sure I went to go see, like, the midnight release of the movie. I don't, I don't remember my movie theater experience going to see the fifth one, but I definitely remember... The seventh one going to Barnes and Noble at midnight to get the book. I think I, for the longest time, I had these like glow in the dark Harry Potter glasses that I held on to that I got from that uh, midnight release of the book. And I stayed up from like when we got home until like, I don't know, maybe like 4 p.m. the next day, just reading all the way through. And then I couldn't sleep after that, even though I hadn't slept in like over 24 hours. Was it because this book was so haunting to you? 
I think so. I mean, it was over. This was like a good portion of my of growing up for me. This the series had followed me through, and it was over. <laughs> and I wanted more. And I think there was always this promise of J.K. Rowling doing this like giant encyclopedia that would be like a little bit more in depth on things, like go into more about like what they did after Hogwarts and stuff like that. And I waited and waited for that. And then I guess that just never came. I don't know what happened to that, but I think. She just turned into Pottermore instead. That's probably where they went, right? That makes sense. I should spend some time exploring Pottermore. I haven't. It's actually now the Wizarding World, isn't it? Instead of Pottermore. That's where we took our quiz to be, um, to figure out which houses we're in and which Patronus. I think they moved. I remember seeing something that they had moved the, the, the sorting hat quiz to another site because uh, it was so popular. Like the, they needed a different server, so they actually moved the website. Um, that's an interesting side fact. You want to get to the, the, the movie? Absolutely. So uh, just before we start, I just we're going to split this just like it always into four acts, just you know, so we don't you know jump back and forth too crazy. Uh, the first act is the start of film to the arrival of Hogwarts. I'll call that Draco's Detour. Um, I think it starts with the, like the like a flashback of like yes of uh harry and dumbledore getting uh shot with the by the photographers for like various news and directly after that scene in the ministry that's where they're like being interviewed and it's interesting because you see dumbledore pull harry in close like as this is happening you get a good shot of like the ring on his finger but it feels like a very protective gesture of him pulling harry close to him and this is the first time like throughout this movie that harry and dumbledore really work together and have that close relationship so i thought that that was like a nice way to kind of introduce that yeah that's something i notice is that harry is increasingly being considered an equal by the older generation you see a little bit with Arthur Weasley, but definitely with Dumbledore. Um, you know, Harry's been through so much, and he has so many skills now. Um, it's not like they feel the need to protect them as much anymore. But, uh, like, it... I guess there is a sense of protecting him only because he's more valuable. Like, people are willing to l- lay down their lives for him at this point. But they know that Harry's capable of taking care of himself as well. I think it's also that they know what has to be done. They know the prophecy. They know it's got to be Harry too. So if they can arm him with the tools that he needs to succeed, then I think that, you know, there's, they're, they're going to go ahead and do that because now it's, it's getting real. It was real last time, but it's even realer now that the entire wizarding world knows. And now they're not hiding anymore. Like the Death Eaters, they're out in the open showing not not necessarily showing themselves to muggles but like muggles know something's going on there that's makes them even more dangerous as they don't fucking care i think they said something in order about them like quietly gathering their forces while fudge was blocking them at every turn but now that fudge is on board I don't know, fudge is not even in the store anymore because he's not important right um now that voldemort's force is strong enough Funny enough, Voldemort, present day, is not there in there at all, but his his presence is still there. Like people speak of him, they're afraid of him, or they're pushed by him to do various very uh, various things, 
and you see Death Eaters immediately attacking downtown London, uh, what's the Millennium Bridge, I think, um, and they go to Ollivander's immediately, and they take someone out with their, a bag over the head. It's obviously Ollivander, um, and they destroy his place. Which was a nice setup for the next one, because it doesn't really come into play the the whole wand thing here uh but definitely in the next one and uh i don't know if it was super obvious that it was Ollivanders. like it looked like they were just destroying things and taking somebody so like maybe last time i saw this it didn't click for me that that they were taking Ollivander. but watching it again now is like okay i see what they're doing they're planting the seeds for the next one yeah i, I love that and because I know where the story's going to go. I paid attention to Dumbledore and his wand this time. What happened, you know, who disarmed him, you know, because then that affects who's the owner of the Elder One. And that's a whole big deal that's in part seven, right? Um, yeah. So after that has happened, uh, by the way, we're introduced to Fenrir Greyback. No one calls him out by name, but he's this feral-looking guy. Really muscular. He's got him, hair yeah. all over his face. He's kind of like a... He's a werewolf, but he almost, like, just hangs out, like, in a ha- in-between state. But we do move on next to uh, seeing the Daily Prophet. And Harry's reading it in, like, this muggle diner or cafe, which... I was kind of like in my notes, I have like, wow, that's bold that he's reading a newspaper like in front of muggles. Like he just doesn't care. And even the girl that he like said she saw it, thought she saw it move the other day. But then later Dumbledore calls him out for being reckless. So I'm like, okay, I see it. He's just, he doesn't give a fuck anymore. And I just love the scene for a couple reasons. But one of them is like when that girl comes over to ask him like who Harry Potter is, he said he's a bit of a tosser. And I think Harry tends to be self-deprecating. But what I really think here is this like person that the Daily Prophet has created, this version of Harry Potter that the Daily Prophet created through all the articles and headlines and stuff like that. That too, Harry thinks, is a bit of a tosser. It's this thing, this expectation of him. And, and last time around, it was different. It was, they were feeling like it was a lot of negativity towards Harry. And that was a completely different persona. And now they've shifted and they've created this new version of Harry. And he hates being in the limelight. So he definitely thinks this like media created version of him is a tosser. It shows how fickle the media is. Like they were denouncing him for a couple years and now he's a hero again he and Dumbledore okay so Harry's reading that newspaper and I notice on there something I never knew before that Lucius actually went to Azkaban oh yeah I definitely think they bring it up in the books I don't I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before but there are like things as a book reader that I feel like you almost take for granted like you just know what happens to Lucius you know how to like fill in the blanks with things that aren't shown in the movie but yeah, that was a, it was a very clever way of like showing that story, but um, it's 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 a little subtle, you know. I like it because it it allows for the introduction to Narcissa, who is Malfoy's wife or uh, Lucius's wife, because she's a Malfoy too now. So with that, it kind of is like a, a starting point explanation of having Draco being part of the main story before he was just like the annoying bully. He had a little bit of a role in Chamber of Secrets, but for the most part, he's never like part of the main story. And this, uh, what I love here is they bring someone who's just a secondary bully and they make him 
the main adversary. You know, they, they really level up Draco's involvement in the plot this time. So you get to see Harry just be a normal person. You know, he asks the... Uh, you can, I think they both are interested in each other. Cause they both kind of ask each other out. She's like waiting for him to ask her out. Yeah, it's definitely a little flirty, but you can see how Harry's gotten like almost like bolder or braver where it's just like he's got nothing left to care about, you know? So if I want to take a pretty girl on a date, I'm going to take a pretty girl out on a date, you know? Versus year four where he was struggling to ask one girl out. You know, because he had no problem slaying dragons, uh, but then he couldn't ask a girl out to the Yule Ball, and he was a horrible date there. But here it's like a little more smoother. Um, it's almost like part of him's ready, you know, for what life will be like after all this is settled. You know, he can just be himself. He can, he can relax. He can ask a girl out on a date. And that's uh, right when that happens, uh, of course, showing up Captain America in Infinity War style. You see Dumbledore uh, showing up after the train uh, leaves. Captain America in Infinity War shows up Dumbledore style. (laughs) So Dumbledore shows up and you can immediately tell something's different with Dumbledore this year. I know people like hate on Michael Gambon because he's like, he's got, I don't want to say like mean spirited version of Dumbledore. Versus the soft-spoken version that uh, Richard Harris had. But I noticed something very different about Michael Gambon's performance in this one. He's a lot more quiet, reserved. He's not as energetic this time. Uh, His voice even sounds a little hoarser. And as you get further along in the film, he looks more and more tired. And we'll get to why he looks that way. I mean, you can see his hand later on. Oh, what's going on there? But... His whole demeanor is shifting this time around. He orders Harry to do as he says, which is, you know, (laughs) definitely something that happens later as well. But, you know, Harry gives up his date with the pretty girl to hold on to Dumbledore's arm and apparate to, he has no freaking clue, but he's going to trust Dumbledore and follow Dumbledore there. I love the location. Even Dumbledore points it out. Welcome to uh, Budley Babbleton. Um... It's like, what's this strange home they go into? It looks like someone got murdered there. There's blood dripping from the ceiling. And then Dumbledore, like, and there's broken photos everywhere. It looks like this place got ransacked. Um, And then Dumbledore licks the blood or, like, sniffs it. And it's like, hmm. And then there's, he looks at a sofa and reveals that uh, Slughorn's pretending to be this, this armchair, right? I just love that, you know, like that's that he's like his head pops out, um, that he's pretending to be a sofa of all things, you know. And it's his pajamas that are like the pattern of it, which I love. But so he, you know, he just says that he's been kind of not staying in the same place for more than one week, and this home is owned by some muggles who are in the Canary Islands. And Dumbledore's like, well, we should clean it up for them, and he uses magic to kind of put everything back in order. And you see the look of wonder on Harry's face, like even after everything that's happened, even after being part of the magical world for so long, he still finds wonder in magic. And I love that they show that. Yeah, it's the Harry loves magic moment, you know, like he's still surprised by it. Um, I love how Dumbledore asks Horace if he can use the bathroom. He's like, Horace doesn't own this place, but I don't know it. So he leaves and then... Harry and Slughorn stare at each other for like a like a 
long, awkward pause before they start talking. So what's interesting is when they get there, Slughorn says, you know, the answer is still no, that I'm not, you know, going to do that. But he had also said that the reason he's been moving from place to place every week is that the Death Eaters keep trying to find him and recruit him. And he's had to say no to them as well, but they only accept no so many times. So it's interesting in the situation, like he's got both sides pulling him, you know, Dumbledore wants him to come back and be a professor and the Death Eaters want him to join. And he's been trying to stay in the middle. He's been trying to stay like Switzerland kind of right, you know, for as long as he can. And it's Harry that convinces him to join the the good side for lack of a better term i wouldn't call him necessarily a good character but he decides to go to hogwarts i love uh how uh harry realizes why he was brought here because he would help influence slughorn to come back because slughorn is obsessed with training and finding new students to add to his like a wall of collections like look at all these cool people i've met you know and I was their professor, you know. I I was wondering about that, right? Because this isn't his home, yet he still has all of these photos out of these people who, you know, he taught or are have ri- risen to fame and he carries this with him. Even though he's traveling, you know, to keep himself safe, he carries these photos with him. And I thought that that was like, odd but then you know Dumbledore does tell Harry the Professor Slughorn is going to try to collect you and that's that's his thing that's his collection is these people and I think that for Slughorn and you see this as we go through too is that he he's similar to Gilderoy Lockhart in a way where he's obsessed with fame but not his own fame he wants to be fame adjacent which is such an interesting thing where and that like drives them that drove Gilderoy Lockhart and that drives Slughorn too because I mean right off the bat he establishes the slug club he starts seeking out these students that show promise and it's it's just an interesting thing to think about that comparison uh also like Lockhart they're neutral parties but also antagonists in their own right now I think Lockhart was more of an antagonist but Slughorn in this one had his like there's an obstacle with him trying to get him to divulge some information. Uh, and I love, you know, one, you see the connection between Slughorn and Harry is Lily was one of his favorite students, and that's the connection. It's like, that's how he, Harry finds his way in. That Lily was this prize student, and she gave birth to the boy who lived, who, you know, outfoxed Voldemort as a child. Um, the chosen one. And of course... Uh, it's so sad, you know, but it's a it's also a nod to the future. Um, another one of his students was Regulus Black, Sirius Black's younger brother. And he had wished that he had gotten Sirius Black because he loves like completing his set, you know, like like a collector, you know, like he likes to have the whole set, like having everyone in the family. That confused me that he said that. And I, again, it's been so long since I've read the books and I've only read this one twice. Um, but if he taught Lily, why wouldn't he have taught Sirius? That confuses me. I mean, perhaps it's that, you know, when he was teaching them, it was later on in their Hogwarts schooling. So they didn't have to take potions at that point. But 
that it yeah, it just didn't quite make sense to me why he wouldn't have taught Sirius. I wonder if Sirius was enough of a troublemaker and he kept his distance from someone like Slughorn. I'm I'm not. But you, you have know. to take potions, like if, you know, first, second, third years, like you have to take your potions class. And if Professor Slughorn was the potions teacher in that time, then. I don't know. We, I mean, we can check the book too, or or if you guys listening want to, you know, know the answer to that. Was that just a line that was put in there for the movie, or is there a little bit more of a story there that we're missing? But I just thought that was odd. Um, and I, just like it's so sad when Slughorn's like, you know, Sirius Black passed away a few weeks ago because he doesn't understand uh, how close Harry was to him, and of course Harry remembers. He saw that happen. And it's still very fresh for him. Uh, but Dumbledore returns and uses like, okay, I can tell that a lost cause when I can see it, you know, break. Uh, I would have viewed this as like a great win for me if I could bring you back, but I could see you've already made up your mind. Come Harry, let's go. Bringing Harry there was his w- way to hook Slughorn in. And then Slughorn like comes and says like, wait, wait, you know, I'll, I'll join, you know, but he's like, I, I better have this person's old office, you know, like a, so then Dumbledore just like you I love seeing like the apprehension on Harry's face when he's about to apparate again because he knows it's uncomfortable and something that they don't get into in the movies is that in the sixth year they learn how to apparate there's like a whole lesson for it but um yeah so he just drops him off at the burrow like right in water so he's like has to walk into the burrow soaking wet but Hedwig and his trunk are there Ginny, of course, is the first one to notice, but I love that none of the Weasleys know he's going to be there. Like, of course they take him in, but nobody's like, hey, can Harry Potter stay for the summer? It's, you know, he just shows up. I think it's cute. Yeah, Ginny's the first one to see him, and it's that first thing where they both acknowledge each other. Um, Ginny, you know, we saw last one, very subtly, Ginny likes Harry, but now we finally see that Harry, you know, he's starting to look at Ginny a different way. Um... She's the first one to bring him in. And I love when Ginny looks up. You can see, like, how crazy-looking the burrow looks, you know, from, you know, was it a frog's eye view or, like, a bug's eye view? Because you're looking from underneath. And you see Mrs. Weasley pop her head out. Then you see Ron pop his head out. And then even further away, you see Hermione pop their head out. I just thought it was, it was like, like a little comical. And I, I love the seeing all their heads at different spots pop out. It's like, Harry's here? Oh, I th- I would have known about that. Why didn't we not get anything about that? Yeah, Molly's like, I would have known if Harry Potter was in my house. And then Ron's like, I would have known if my best friend were here, um, which I love. But I love that you pointed out that that, you know, was a comical thing because I feel like one thing this film does very well is the comedy. Like I laughed seeing a few things here and I think it was maybe the the best approach to comedy that any of them have had so i I've definitely appreciated that you mean like it didn't try too hard to like make jokes it was like the situation allowed itself to have comedy yeah i mean maybe it is that it didn't try too hard we talked about like the fourth one being a little bit of like a rom-com feel i felt like this one did it but did it better you know and, it, and maybe it's because you take out a little bit of the teenage awkwardness and just kind of like let things flow as they should that it worked there's definitely still that awkwardness but you know it, it i don't know it, it just worked here it's interesting because uh, we're about to well not ju- about to but there is uh definitely the rom-com feel definitely in the middle section of this film uh, but we get set up for that um but before that we also get set up for dumbledore's demise we see two references to 
Um, so Molly Weasley, Mrs. Weasley, uh, after Harry says, oh yeah, Dumbledore just dropped me off here. It's like, oh, Dumbledore, what would we do without him? You know, like, oh, you know, like, and right after that, Harry's talking with Ron and Hermione and they're cons- they express concern, like Ron and Ginny almost didn't go back this year because uh, Molly didn't want that. You know, it's too dangerous. And Hermione even says, Dumbledore's getting old. You know, like, how old is he? You know, like, they joke, like, 180? Like, I don't know what his actual age is, but he's getting on in years. Like, even though he's the world's greatest wizard, he may be way past his prime at this point. Is Hogwarts safe? No, it's not. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just noticed those references you know that Dumbledore is on his way out so there's such a great transition here they're burning the daily prophet and you see it focus in on Malfoy's picture as it's burning and then this transitions us to the scene where Bellatrix Lestrange and Narcissa Malfoy sisters are heading towards Snape's place and I just love that approach to the transition so it's raining. I noticed for the score, of course, uh, it's very like haunting, eerie music. It's like strings, but they're playing in a very like uncomfortable, um, like kind of like almost, I don't want to say nails on a chalkboard, but it's like very, I'm not great at explaining music, but I just love how it conveys like there's danger something wrong is occurring here. Um, and of course, we're focusing on the dark side. Uh, so you see Bellatrix and Narcissa show up at Snape's place. Of course, Wormtail. Well, so Wormtail answers the door. He doesn't have any lines in this film, but he's after you know bringing the Dark Lord back. He's basically just the the butler for everyone. You know, he doesn't really have a role in like the the table essentially. So think about this for a second. Wormtail's the one who gave away the secret of where James and Lily were and Snape loved Lily. So like Snape having to stay with Wormtail, it's obvious like he doesn't, he's not pleased that he's there. And I can't remember in the books, God, it's been like 15 years and I've only read this one twice, but like I feel like Voldemort assigned Wormtail there and I can't remember if it was for Wormtail to look after Snape or Snape to look after Wormtail. But Snape's not pleased that Wormtail's there in the first place, so he treats him like a, a butler. Uh, but yeah, it must be really tough for him to have to deal with. On top of that, he's like playing a role, you know? This is a whole new thing for for Snape. He was able to just kind of be the grumpy teacher in at Hogwarts, and now he has to play a role to Voldemort, to Dumbledore. We can't tell. Who knows? We know the end point. But at this point, you don't know whose side he's actually on. You can see he's struggling, but he doesn't want to show anyone that he's struggling with it. His best defense is just to keep his typical personality and, um, you know, like kind of be salty to other people. He can't tell whose his loyalties, you know, truly lie. And But he does bring up to Bellatrix, like, it's very unwise to think less of Dumbledore to underestimate him because he could surprise them and beat them. Um, and this is where the unbreakable vow happens. 
a Bellatrix suggests it because she wants Snape to really commit to helping Draco out with his new mission assigned by Voldemort, who's not in this, but his presence is felt again. We don't know what that mission is, though. And that's, I mean, they, they said the Dark Lord doesn't, you know, want us to talk about it at all. So they actually don't talk about it. You have no idea what's going on. You know it involves Malfoy and you know Snape is going to help, but we don't know what his objective is. It's interesting. Voldemort doesn't come back till the seventh story, but he doesn't bring up this plot at all. I don't remember him bringing up the Draco's involvement and in bringing down Dumbledore. But uh, this is an interesting like development of the story, having a child of one of his Death Eaters come up. It's like, now it's your turn to commit this act. Probably because he can get closer than anyone. That, and I also think it's punishment for Lucius uh, because, I mean, he's, he's probably really pissed at Lucia so it's like a punishment and I think Narcissa knows it which is why she goes to Snape for help and at the end of the day it's not like those Death Eaters who come to Hogwarts really do anything in the movie at least I almost feel like they were there as backup to kill Dumbledore if Malfoy couldn't actually do it and Malfoy doesn't do it so maybe that's why Voldemort doesn't actually bring it up because it was Snape which solidified Voldemort's trust in Snape so uh, was Lucius punished because he couldn't get the prophecy? I don't know. Like, I can't remember specifically why he was punished. I feel like part of it was, you know, he he was not successful. And what he, he dropped the prophecy. Uh, so that could have been part of it. But also, like, he did get sent to Azkaban. So it made him, it would, I feel like that's a, a weakness almost, you know. Uh, so Snape agrees to do the unbreakable vow to protect Draco on his mystery mission. And he makes it with uh, Narcissa. I love the name, Narcissa. Like a narcissist, uh, Malfoy. So now Snape is committed to this, even though he has his own reservations about it, whatever it is. And from there, we go to something a little more fun. We go to see the Weasley's twins, their joke shop. Uh, Weasley's Wizarding Weezes, yeah. And, which is in Diagon Alley. Which is sad because Hermione brings up later half the stores are shut down. You see all of Andrews is burnt down. Well, it's an interesting thing because in that, you know, like you go to this like happy, colorful, bright, fun, laughter filled place. And then you do see where it's actually located and that darkness and the light like the I thought that's an interesting like juxtaposition there. The Weasley shop is like heavy with pinks and yellows and very bright. And oranges and, you know, very expressive colors, you know, very bright and, uh, like, cheery. And then as soon as they go outside, it's, like, very earthy and dark and, like, the shadows are, like, very heavy. So I love the contrast there between the happiness and then, like, immediate dark, which is most of the film looks that way. It's it's At certain parts, it was hard to watch this movie because it's hard to see. We had to adjust our TV settings. What I love about the Weasley's joke shop is uh, the first thing we see... Not one of the first things, but you see that Umbridge toy. Never saw that before. And it's like, it sounds like her too, right? Yeah, that was a very like clever nod to that. Especially because that's like really what launched them in this direction too. Another thing I noticed speaking to the rom-com that happens in the middle of this film. All these couplings are referenced um, while they're in this shop. You see uh, Ginny and Dean are together. Who you hear about it and Harry's like, what? Uh, Ron uh, is walking around and Lavender is like staring at him. Ugh, Lavender Brown. And then Hermione, so Hermione and Ginny are looking at the love potions 
And then Ginny walks away, and then Hermione sees Cormac McLaggen staring at her, and she immediately puts down the love potion. She's like, "Nope, I'm not. I'm not doing that." But another thing I like about this, uh, uh, Ron's is like, "I'm your brother to his, the twins." So it's like I get a discount, right? It's like, "No, five gallons, just like everyone else." It's like, "But I'm your brother." So, oh, ten gallons. <laughs> I charge him more for that. What's interesting with what happens next is. In the books, this is a, a very distinct thing I remember because they did plant seeds of this or not even plant seeds. They did. There are threads of this throughout the movie. But in the books, it's Harry who sees Malfoy, who's like, he's up to something. And they have the invisibility cloak because I think somebody tells him to keep it on him at all times. I can't remember who. So they have the invisibility cloak. The three of them try to fit under it, which is harder now that they're older. And they follow him to Borgen and Burks. And I feel like they get like a better view of what happens. But this really launches Harry being suspicious of Malfoy. And there, you see that throughout. But in the books, it hits a lot harder where he's like, Malfoy's up to something. Something's wrong here. It's like his gut feeling and nobody wants to believe him because he doesn't have any tangible evidence. It's just a gut feeling. I think I got that. That point got across for me. Like Harry's like obsessed with Malfoy, this story. And whereas people are like, whoa, you're really sure about that? He's like an ass, but I don't think he's like dangerous, dangerous, you know, someone who would do the work of Voldemort. But I love when they're crawling up on that roof. It's like, oh, they're trying to be like Spider-Man, you know, like Harry's like, you see him like with his arms stretched out. Um, and they, they don't really hear anything, but you see they're in Borgen and Burks and then Fenrir Groback closes the, the blinds. I think you do see the vanishing cabinet there. Yeah, but uh, we don't but know the, what it is. It's out of context right now. We don't know what they're talking about. And then we see later Draco has the tattoo now. So he was being initiated, just like Harry thought was happening, into the uh, the Death Eaters. And that's what they're talking about on the train. No one believes Harry. And of course, Harry picks up some of that Peruvian... Peruvian instant darkness powder, I believe is what it's called, but I could be wrong. So he uses that. Batman style, another superhero reference to get into where the Slytherins are staying on the Magical Express. What I love here is that you hear Malfoy say to um, to like his group of Slytherins that he would pitch himself off the astronomy tower. And that is how Dumbledore dies. And, you know, Malfoy's partially responsible for that as well. So I thought that that was a interesting I guess, moment of foreshadowing a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad you brought that up. I have that in my notes as well. Okay, so Draco's talking to Slytherins, and then he can he heard a little rustling above, and he knows that it's Harry. And so when everyone leaves, he closes everything, attacks Harry with a cheap shot. You know, I mean, Harry was spying on him, so what was, what was he expecting? But then he kicks Harry in the face while he's, like, stunned. I just, it just felt like, like a real, like, low blow. He's gone ruthless. I mean, both Harry and Malfoy, with everything that's happened to them, they've both kind of changed a little bit, and they're they have a different outlook on life, and they they're both dicks to each other and all of this. But yeah, he and then he covers him up so that he can't um, he covers him up so he can't be found, and he was thinking he'd head back on the train to London, and it's interesting. The way that they did it, but in the books, Tonks is the one that actually finds him on the train, and she's looking for him because she didn't see him get off the train, and there are ours following Harry around, 
not necessarily for like the safety of Hogwarts, but they're ours trying to protect Harry because they know how valuable Harry is. But here they have Luna find Harry. So Tonks is not there on the, like as a member of the order, but as an or to protect Hogwarts, right? At this point, I think it's both. Okay. Uh, and then Dumbledore, of course, you know, is friendly with the order. But, you know, officially she's there on or business. He's saved by Luna. Looney Lovegood. Who's, uh, this year she's carrying around, like, copies of the Quibbler, handing them out to people. She said something about an animal that gets in your head and turns a The Raxperts. Harry's head's full of them. That's how she found him. <laughs> oh, that's what she saw. Um, and then, well, she was pointing out to Ginny that this fuzzy little creature on her arm. Pygmy puff. They got okay, it so at Fred and George's though, right? shop. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so she's wearing her spectral specs. Not only does she save Harry, but she also fixes his nose. And like it's a quick like whoop, and then you hear like the little of his nose. And it's like, oh like I, I love that little quick little scene right there. Well no, Harry asks, How does my nose look? Exceptionally ordinary, she says. She's nothing but honest. I love her inclusion of her character. Like just like someone who's completely against the grain, but not like trying to be against the grain. That's just the way she is. We see as they walk up to Hogwarts, there's checkpoints now, security checkpoints. You see Flitwick asking for their names, even though, you know, it's me. You know, if you've been teaching me for the past five years and uh, like Filch and Ors are checking everyone's uh, bags. That was a funny scene, though, with the uh, with Flitwick. He does say like, Professor Flitwick, you've been teaching me like I've been in your class for however long. And he's like, no exceptions, Potter. And he literally calls him by his name. Um, Malfoy's bag's being checked and Snape is like, oh, I'll take it from here. He's fine. And it's the first, you know, time you see Snape like looking after Draco, um, cause it's his mission to make sure Draco's okay. So you see that several times throughout the film. But that brings us to the end of our first act, um, and to the second one, which starts with the starting feast and ends with the burrow tactor in Christmas. And I'll call this slug club. So when Slughorn agrees to come back and teach, you don't know what he's coming back to agree to teach for. And I mean, he's a Slytherin. So you assume defense against the dark arts, but we find out very quickly that he's actually here to be the potions teacher. And Snape is going to take after this coveted position that he's been wanting for however long. The only thing is we never get to see Snape at that post as defense against the dark arts professor. They've been making like like, it's been a running joke for a while that Snape can never get it, even though all these professors come in and then, like, are in and out in one year, and Snape finally gets it, and we never see him in that role. I had that in my notes, too, later, because I realized, it's like, we don't actually get to see that, which is a bummer, because I feel like this movie called for it. I mean, I'll get a little bit more into this, too, but this movie is called Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, and the Half-Blood Prince is Snape, and he makes very little... Or I guess he doesn't have as much of a role in this as he really should. So that's one thing. But Dumbledore gives his start of term speech. And one thing, and I mean, we saw this in the fourth one too, where he tells the students how Cedric died. You, you don't get to see it in the fifth one because Umbridge is kind of there censoring everything. But in this one, Dumbledore is very honest with the students about what's going on in the world. So it's a very somber speech he has. He's not looking to make any fanfare, but he just wants to get one point across in this very quiet speech he has. 
It says, Once there was a young man who, like you, sat in this very hall, walked this castle's corridors, slept under its roofs. He, he seemed to all the world a student like any other. His name, Tom Riddle. And there's like, oh. And of course you see Jenny because she was affected by him in Chamber of Secrets, that, that diary, right? The first horcrux, as we'll get to. And he gets to the fact that uh, every day, every hour, this very minute, perhaps dark forces attempt to penetrate this castle's walls. But in the end, their greatest weapon is you. There's something to think about. Now off to bed, pip pip. You could easily become either another Voldemort or a servant in his dark plan, right? Nice message to Malfoy. Oh, yeah, that is. This, he knows that Malfoy is uh, like up to something, right? I mean, Snape's his informant. We know at the end of the day, Snape is a good guy. But yeah. um, I'm sure he told, you know, Dumbledore what he had to. So I like this. It felt like a cautionary tale. Like, uh, be careful of your own actions. Be careful of who influences you because you very well could be aiding or becoming just like Voldemort himself. And then we see the start of classes, and I think is it looks like Harry and Ron are like laughing because like all the first years have no idea what they're doing, and I love how so much smaller they are. Like uh, Harry and Ron are standing standing much taller, and it's funny because during Harry's and Ron's first year, they were clueless where to go. And it's not like we focus on the older students, you know, they were just in the background, but now they get to be those older students. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, Dumbledore even says later to Harry, like. Sometimes I still see you as that, you know, boy from the cupboard. And that was, I mean, like an interesting kind of comparison there. Harry's first year versus where he is now and how far he's come and how much he's grown. So they talked to McGonagall. And I do want to point out that it may have not just been this film, but Maggie Smith, who plays Professor McGonagall, was going through cancer treatment, I think for leukemia. And you can see, I mean, everyone's aging, but you can see she looks a lot more older than she's been before. So I just, I want to shout out to her for, with like something as hard to deal with as cancer, she could still come in and do all of her scenes. So I really appreciate her role in this. I think she's still got a lot to do. Maggie um, Smith is amazing. Yeah, she really is. Um, she uh, was talking to Harry about him being a Newt student. Can you t- tell me so, what that's about? I, they don't really talk about it in the last one, but I think they had like kind of career meetings with the head of houses to see like, where do you want to go? What are your objectives? And Harry tells McGonagall that he wants to be an R. And in order to be an R, he needs to have gotten like a certain grade on his OWLs, which he took last book, as we saw. And in order to move into the next one so because he didn't harry's like all right well i guess i'm not gonna be an r i'm not gonna sign up for potions because i don't need to take it last time with snape so he doesn't sign up for potions he has a free period instead and that's why mcgonagall says well you know a slughorn you don't need an outstanding you just need an exceeds expectations so you can continue on your path to being an r and head to potions take weasley with you so i love this scene um because i can relate to it so much at school, high school, having all those used books that the students can use while they're in class rather than bringing their books home and back. Uh, it's like, just grab, you know, like his hair and Ron or, you know, get their lasso. There's only two books left. There's a nice looking book and there's one that looks like it's going to fall apart. And Harry and Ron quickly like 
fight over it. And I remember running against another student back in high school, try to get the nicer book. Did you win? I did. I mean, but it's not like a, like I always won that, but like, I just remember it's like, I, this happened to me, you know, except my book wasn't covered with all these great lessons, you know, like these great tips and tricks from some half-blood prince or anything like that. <laughs> so the half-blood prince of history telling you what really <laughs> happened. Um, I think what happened is Harry and Ron weren't expecting to take potions, so they didn't buy a potions book. So here's the ones that are left over that you can use for the the semester. Harry got lucky by getting the janky one because it worked out for him. You can see when they're asked to make the draw of the living death, Harry's easily able to beat everyone. And Hermione's like, the book says this, it has to be this. And he's like, no. And she's like so confused by that. She's so by the book. It's hard for her to go against instruction, you know. It reminds me of cooking because you're not like that practiced in the kitchen. So if you have a recipe, you're like following it to a T. And, and like if I tell you how to make something, I'm like, just, you know, throw it in to taste. And you're like, you have no idea what that means. Like, can you just give me a measurement, please? So um, that it reminded me of that for sure. And so you get to see that whoever gets this right gets to win the Felix Felices. And I love seeing everybody else try and fail, like cutting the thing up. Nobody can get it right. Seamus even explodes his potion, which was a nice, like, you know, nod to Seamus's past exploding everything, even in Wingardium Leviosa. So uh, what is, uh, oh, before that, they bring up... uh love potion like all these based off smells you can tell what potion it is and of course uh he's pointing out the love potion and all the girls in the class are like gravitating only the girls they're gravitating toward this love potion well i think it's because they were standing closest to it and whatever it smells like to whoever like the person smelling it it's like obviously like attractive things so like Hermione is standing next to it at first and she's telling you know what it smells like to her she obviously cuts off before she says whatever you know the thing was about Ron that it was that uh you know drew her in but it smells intoxicating and enticing because these are all the things that like attract you I guess okay so Harry wins because he's got all the the cheats from this half-blood prince book um and he wins the Felix Felicis. Yeah. It's like gives you uh, luck as long as the effects are still, you know, you're still feeling the effects of it, right? Yeah. He says one only one student was successful in making that potion. And I didn't wonder for a second, was it Lily? Because Lily was, you know, gifted at potions. Or was it Snape? And again, if it was Snape, I go back to the argument that he would have taught Sirius. But I digress. So he had them brew this potion that he said could have killed them all. It was a deadly potion. I guess there had to be some danger this year. I mean, there's no three-headed dog or giant basilisk or, you know, (laughs) I mean, there are murderers on the loose, but still six years brewing deadly potions. That doesn't seem safe. However, that's Hogwarts for you. Yeah. Yeah, like there's no room for weaklings at Hogwarts. Like if it's like very Darwinian, you know, like if a kid stumbles off into a 
dangerous corner and gets killed. That's that's on the kid. They need to breed kids to be strong adults because they, you know, the generation before had to deal with Voldemort and now they're going to have to deal with him again. So there's no tolerance for people who can't take care of themselves or they don't try to like make the school. They say no safer place but Hogwarts, but safe from like outright danger. Like if a kid's stupid enough to wander into a hall with a three-headed dog and get killed, then that was on the student. Or go into something unequipped, you know, be reckless. Fall off the room, you know, like all these things. So Harry goes to Dumbledore's office next, right? And we're not quite sure why he's there just yet, and I don't think Harry is either. It's a little weird that Dumbledore asks him about his love life. I don't know if it was like supposed to be a nod to like him understanding like, I get you're a kid, you know, you have all these irresponsible things to do, but I get that you're a kid still or a teenager. I saw that as uh, like the filmmakers, like making it clear that Harry and Hermione are not a thing. Um, maybe not. I didn't think so much of Dumbledore asking, but just more of the people writing the story. But throwing that in there. So Dumbledore is looking at the old diary from Tom Riddle from Chamber of Secrets. Destroyed. And that's part of a series of things that that Dumbledore wants to understand better. And he also show, looks at a ring which belonged to uh, his mother. Uh, uh, Tom Riddle's mother that we don't know really much about. What's a bummer in the movie is that... You do get to learn so much more about Voldemort in the book with the Pensieve because it's you see Voldemort at different stages of his life, but then you also go back and you see other memories that Dumbledore has extracted from other people and hunted down in order to find out the, you know to find out how to to get rid of Voldemort once and for all. So that I felt was really lacking in this movie. Well, the book read is going to be great then because it will get so much greater context and understanding about the character of Voldemort and history leading up to him getting those horcruxes, the mystery of why he keeps surviving. So uh, Dumbledore shows Harry this beautiful gallery rotating thing. And I instantly thought of when you're at those diners, the old timey ones, and they have like the cakes and the, the, the pies. Like I thought of that for some reason. This is much more ornate, but had a similar feel to it. I think you're just craving some cake or pie. Perhaps. Um, so we get to go back into Dumbledore's pensive since the fourth one. And then we get to see a much younger Dumbledore. Does not look like Jude Law at all, by the way. Uh, as he's visiting this orphanage, the walls of the orphanage look a lot like the ministry. Like uh, those, the black bricks. It has a very slate look to it very cold look to it and he's going to visit tom riddle at the orphanage it's a very unnerving encounter it's very disturbing you know yeah i agree because what's interesting is you find out from a young age that tom riddle has always had a little bit of a dark streak you know he's hurt people who have bullied him he's forced animals to do things he said and what's interesting is, okay, Tom Riddle was an orphan. He was bullied and so was Harry. Harry was an orphan. He was bullied by the family that he lived with. He didn't, he couldn't even really call it a family, you know, but Harry didn't do those things. Harry didn't hurt people with his abilities or try to, or instinctively head to that place, you know, 
Dudley fell into a snake, an empty snake, you know, exhibit at the zoo. And that's maybe about it for Harry. He's made, made his hair grew longer. Like he, he didn't have malicious intentions, even when he was unintentionally doing magic. So Harry, as a boy, was doing almost more playfully. I want to bring this up, even though we're not doing this series as a comparison. Voldemort as a child, Tom Riddle at the orphanage versus Anakin Skywalker as a child very different outlooks of these characters, you know, before they become these big bads of their respective series, right? Anakin Skywalker is very cheery and almost over the top, like, uh, with his optimism. And Tom Riddle, from the get-go, you can tell this kid, whatever he went through, it, it doesn't look like he's going to be doing anything nice to anyone. He says, I can hurt people. Um, and then he also says, I can talk to snakes, you know, like all these red flags that pop up. And he also steals. Of course, he's going to be doing more than stealing as he grows older. I'd argue, though, that like, and full disclosure, I was only exposed to Star Wars later in my life. I don't have that kind of attachment to it. I know how a lot of people feel about the prequels, and I know how I feel about the prequels. I don't think Anakin's character was as well thought out or established as Voldemort's was. So I just, I mean, that's an interesting comparison of somebody who you do see as a kid and then evolved into a dark. No, no, I brought that up because I feel like you sense that darkness right from the get with Voldemort, much more intimidating, much more meaningful. And I feel, I guess George Lucas wanted to show you a change. He didn't want to show you a kid who was already have darkness to him but i feel like in terms of realizing the character i uh, like i'm much more interested in the voldemort backstory you know he's already like has a penchant for dark things has a very dark outlook on his abilities and his view of the world uh and i love dumbledore um when suggesting taking him to hogwarts like this is not a place for mad people it's a school to learn magic uh and he goes on to uh because he knows that uh tom riddle stole something he's like thievery will not be tolerated at hogwarts tom in fact at hogwarts you'll be taught not only how to use magic but how to control it do you understand me it's kind of like a soft lesson like we will not accept like bad behavior there yeah so um Tom Riddle, instead of, you know, being open about his usage of dark magic, tried to, he kept it very dark. You know, the Chamber of Secrets, he kept that all to himself. Um, the Horcrux, he only went to Slughorn about, who, you know, we'll get to that part because that's part of the plot to get that information out of him. But this is the part that you don't see is that Voldemort you know, agreed to that, went to Hogwarts. Hogwarts was his home. It was just like Harry. He finally found somewhere where he felt accepted and like he belonged. But then he started researching his origins, where he came from, who his parents were, and found out his connection to Salazar Slytherin. And already having that darkness inside him and then seeing where it came from too, he began pursuing that path a little bit more. And that's really the part that this is missing is you're supposed to know, like there's a, a lot of things, but 
we want to know who the Half-Blood Prince is, what his connection to Voldemort is. He's, you know, Snape, like Voldemort, like Harry, has, you know, one muggle parent or one muggle-born parent at least, and, you know, one wizard parent. They're all kind of half-blood princes in, in their own sense, and that's why I think, like, Snape relates to Voldemort. And we don't see that in this movie, and that's the problem. Like, we don't see Voldemort exploring his past and his history and where he came from and how he got there. We don't see him find that ring, track it down, you know, see who his mother is or anything like that. And that's, I feel like, an essential piece of the story is getting to know Voldemort a little deeper this time around, and we don't see it. And then there's also getting to know Snape a little bit deeper this time around, and we also don't see that. But we there's there's weird perspectives in this movie. Like we get to see Malfoy a little bit more, or like other things that just don't make sense because they also aren't fully developed. I would have liked to see more of Snape's and Voldemort's backstory. They only teased, you know. You see a little bit of Snape's backstory with the Oculency lessons in the last movie, and then Voldemort. You see a couple scenes here, mainly him at the orphanage and him learning about Horcruxes. That's it, right? But you don't know about his family backstory because it's key in building those horcruxes. I mean, we'll get to that part later because there's something I wanted to know about that. So, uh, yeah, we don't get that much of Voldemort or Snape. The only thing we see of Snape is his mission to protect Draco. Speaking of Draco, he gets access to the Room of Requirement. It opens up to him, right? He knows it's there, I think, because they found it last time around. But also, he might have been looking for something, like somewhere where he can hide and work on this. Or perhaps that was his direction to use the room of requirement for that. I feel like Voldemort knew Hogwarts upside and down. And, you know, maybe that was a suggestion. I cannot remember exactly how he stumbled upon it. but I wonder, the room of requirement turned into, like this hoarder's palace like all this junk is there now like last year was so last year last year it was so clean you know i mean it it was met to the needs of the dumbledore's army so it could be a nice training room right but now it's just everyone's junk is just laying there it transforms into what the user needs it to be right but you also see this like room of junk come it shows up for Ginny and harry because that's like i feel like it's almost like the room of lost things too so it does come back like that later for harry and Ginny, but then also in the next one so this is where we get introduced to the vanishing cabinet we do see one borgen brooks but it's not like given attention to and this is what draco is going to use to you know that's what he needs to complete his mission but you know it takes him a few tries he comes back to him every few scenes like he puts an apple in there it comes out and there's a bite taken out of it and then he puts a bird in. now when he puts the bird in um was he expecting to come back alive or is that a sign coming back dead that someone killed it and then it came back or did it not survive the spatial travel perhaps i mean like it didn't survive the travel um which is why he was working on that and then when you see so the bird thing is interesting right when you initially see him i believe it's in this scene it's you see the cage with the white bird and the black bird Uh 
they're both there and then later in the movie you see just the black bird and that's when he puts the white bird in and then later there's no birds and he does put the black bird in too but that black bird survives because harry and jenny let it out so perhaps it's like him just kind of experimenting seeing what's working what's not inanimate objects versus living things so from there we get some more like lighthearted stuff we have quidditch which we haven't seen in a few years at hogwarts um, you don't see in the fifth one that Ginny joins the Hogwarts team, the Gryffindor team, as a chaser, but she does, and now she's been a part of the team. Yeah, yeah we haven't seen Hogwarts quitted since year three, um, so the team is different now because Fred and George are gone, Oliver Wood's gone, and now we see like there's no like like background knowledge of this, but Ginny's like. What, she, it looks like she's like a co-captain with Harry of the team now, right? I can't remember, actually. Maybe? She, I know she was really good as a chaser. Because they're, they're both like on the team already. They're doing hot tryouts. So just because you were on the team last year doesn't mean you'll be on this year. But they're both clearly on the team, right? Um, I love that. Yeah, the Quidditch matches, like it's really not on Harry. It's on Ron. You know, like. You know, Harry could have been could have shown Harry looking for the snitch, but it's not about Harry this time. Um, we finally get to see Ron's ch- time to shine. Of course, his mini adversaries, Cormac. He gets in his head too, Ron, and I think he gets nervous for that reason. Like he starts to doubt himself. He like almost like tries to convince Cormac McLaggen to like, you know, no, you look like a beater. You know, like why why are you going after a keeper and that makes Ron nervous too because it's almost like he doesn't feel like he can compete with Cormac and you see that later during the actual matches like he's doubting himself and he all this pressure is on him to perform so Hermione's in the stands of course Lavender's also watching as well but Hermione does something we thought she would we would never see her do she actually cheats to help Ron because it looks like Cormac is going to get the spot because he's a better keeper Right, which is like the goalie in Quidditch, right? Um, but she uses what is it, Confundus, to like kind of knock him off to the side so someone can score against Cormac. Yep. And Ron just does barely enough so he can get the spot. He's like falling off his broom at certain points, um, and he's like, if he's like knocking um, the what is the the quaffle away? It's like almost by mistake, you know, like his head got in the way at the last second or something like that. Um, but I, I love that Ron finally has something like he can be happy about because the mirror of error said year one, he sees himself as the Quidditch captain and he's like head boy. He's got all these great things. And now he finally is starting to get action toward that. That's actually a good point. And I think we forgot to bring it up in the last one, but Ron got prefect in the fifth year. Like Ron and Hermione both became prefects and he felt like, you know, they all thought Harry was going to get it. So it was a surprise that Ron actually got prefect for him. So it's kind of like he's starting to fulfill this desire that he has, but he's still full of so much doubt. And I mean, part of it is because he's the, you know, he's six out of seven kids. He's best friend with the chosen one. He lives in the shadow of everybody right now. So when he does finally have the time to shine, it's way outside of his comfort zone and he gets very nervous. And you see him, like, right before his first Quidditch match, he looks like he's going to be sick, you know? I felt... Uh, Harry felt, like, 
a little off before his first Quidditch match, but that was back in year one, right? So much time has gone by. Oh my god, you know? And everyone's like, uh, we're cheering for you, Ron. Like, Seamus comes up to him and he's like... But on the other side of that, people are making fun of him, too. So it just... And it's a mindset thing for Ron because he's starting to doubt himself. He thinks he can't do it, so he's getting in his head about it. But once he has this, like... It's like the placebo effect, right? He thinks he took something that's going to help him. And it that helps him, believing that he has something that's going to help him. And then his true skill shines. Oh, the, using the Felix Felices? Yeah, that's perfect. Um, having, like, just believing that he had that additional push uh, was enough to show that Ron that he doesn't need that at all because he was able to do so well without it, literally without it. Um, and he finally has that moment to shine during that match. What I like about that scene, though, it's in the snow. I don't think we ever got to see a Quidditch match in the snow before, and they really showed everyone, like, fighting each other. Like, it gets, like, pretty yeah. brutal, and, like, everyone in the rooms, like, at the, all these air fights, you know, people, like, knocking into each other, pushing each other out of the way to get the quaffle or get out of the way of the bludgers you know like i love how intense the fight got agreed um, it's almost really feels like hockey that's like a dangerous yeah. sport like that i do want to acknowledge luna though for just like she's the one who calls out the harry like it looks like he spilled something into his drink and she just shows up at the table like next to the gryffindors with this giant lion's head <laughs> like it's it was a brilliant moment of comedy for luna i love that even though she's a ravenclaw she's like a diehard gryffindor fan um but she's like very nonchalant about it. It's like she doesn't point out that she's wearing this lion's head. It's just like just normal. Uh, I just love that that character so much. So it's uh, it's winter time now. Um, I noticed Ginny's becoming more and more a part of the story because you know obviously love interest for Harry. Uh, but you know you see her a little bit in two because she's part of the main plot but then she kind of push is pushed to the side and then comes back a little bit in five as part of the dumbledore's army but now i feel like she's upgraded to like main character status agreed because i think they try to make her and hermione more friend like like build that friendship up a little bit too so it makes more sense for her to be part of the gang like hermione has another friend who's a girl who maybe gets it who she can confide in and talk to about things that she wouldn't be able to talk to ron and harry about Okay, that makes sense to me. Um, so it's winter time, so of course let's go to Hogsmeade. Sorry, oh, go ahead. So what I think is interesting is like her being part of that group is they're all talking about the Half Blood Prince book. Hermione is like put off by it because of course it knows more than she does, so that like doesn't feel good for her. But Ginny's like the one who's also part of teasing him about this book, this questionable book that nobody knows its origins, and. Ginny's one to know about questionable books. Do you think that's why she's like, Harry, you need to get rid of this book because of her experience with it? That's great. I love that. That's another context to it. Uh, so it's winter at Hogwarts. It's time to head to Hogsmeade, of course. The students go to the three broomsticks, right? This is after Harry's been given the assignment to get to know Slughorn in order to extract the information that he needs. And of course... Slughorn is there, and I love how Slughorn is very drunk there. I love his hair is, like, just, like, all up, you know, disheveled. And he's telling this story to, like, someone else sitting at the bar. But it looks like the person's not really 
paying attention to him. But he's think like he's like making friends at the bar. Like you see him earlier, it's like Flitwood, come to the three room six. Like, oh no, 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 I have to emergency choir session. No one wants to hang around with him because he's like this old codger. Um, just like gets drunk and tells nonsense stories. And then he uh, he sees Harry, Ron, and Hermione. But before he goes over there, uh, Ron's uncomfortable because he sees his sister making out with Dean Thomas, one of his like uh, classmates. And then Hermione like responds like, oh, what if she looked over here and saw you snogging me? And then Ron's like, oh. You know, like it just like hit him like, wait, are you into me? He you even know, like, brings it. I think they, they both kind of knew too. He even brings it up later to Harry. He's like, what do you think she meant by the whole snogging thing? You could tell Hermione was happy to say that. Like that was her way of saying like, I'm, you know, I'm into you. Because she asked him to the ball and not of the ball. She asked him to slug. She asks him to Slughorn's party in a little bit too, because she thinks they're getting somewhere as well. And of course, like she says, he's thick and doesn't quite get it. But I'm just thinking of us right now. Well, we didn't know each other in high school, but I'm just thinking of us. You know, what if we did know each other younger? I wasn't the school dance type of girl. Yeah. I was the stay home and read Harry Potter kind of girl. I would have joined you. <laughs> So uh, Slughorn comes to visit them, and he invites Harry and Hermione to the Slug Club and calls Ron Wallenby. <laughs> I love that, like, Jenny's part of the Slug Club, and I think it's because she's, like, ex- got exceptional abilities or whatever. But he knows Jenny's name, but he can't get Ron's right. Another sign that, you know, uh, Slughorn uh, doesn't know how to hold his alcohol. Like, he's, like, talking to him, and then, like, half of his drink spills over onto the table. And almost hits Hermione. She gets out of the way in time. And he's like, oh, hands on deck, Granger. You know, I, I just love that line so much. So they're on their way back uh, from Three Broomsticks. And we haven't in the movies really met her, but she's a member of the Quidditch team, Katie Bell, right? Was she bewitched by Malfoy to deliver a package to Dumbledore? Like, what, what happened there? Well, we don't know what happened now. We see her and her friend arguing and about the package and then when she touches the necklace she flies like you know up in the air and gets impacted by this the cursed necklace and i believe that it's a malfoy cursed her to take it to dumbledore like that was his kind of like sly way of trying to kill dumbledore without having to directly kill dumbledore obviously it didn't work carry around her money or behind him and I love a little bit later, McGonagall says to them, like, why is it always you three? And Ron's like, I've been asking myself the same question for the past six years. Like, So speaking of that scene, uh, she, uh, McGonagall calls in Snape to inspect the necklace um, for, you know, foul play because uh, what happened to her? Um, apparently it was cursed. It was supposed to be given to Dumbledore. You know, someone's trying to kill Dumbledore and Harry suspects Draco. And that both professors are like really like shocked that Harry said that. And Harry's like, I just know. And Snape says, you just know. And then he tells him how grand it must be to be the chosen one. Like, and uh, Snape definitely knows it's Draco, but he kind of also puts Harry in his place because Harry has no proof. Harry's just using his hate of Malfoy to just make that assumption. And is it very easily able to snuff Harry's theory out. So no one else thinks that could possibly be Draco. Which starts to kind of plant the seeds for Harry 
distrusting Snape towards the end. I mean, that's always the case for Harry, but I think he's kind of been, you know, proven that Snape can help. Dumbledore trusts him, you know, but, but this is kind of showing Harry that, like, you know, maybe Snape isn't as trusting, you know, as trustworthy as you'd think. So from here, I think we move to the Slug Club, right? So Harry, Hermione, Ginny, who comes a little late, Cormac, and you see Neville there. Neville is invited, but he does not, like, eventually, like, join the main, like, the honored guests. I feel like this is, like, tryouts for the Slug Club. One of the things that they do is they mention that Ginny's crying because she and Dean were fighting again, so Hermione points that out to Harry, and... This is kind of like where Slughorn's going to see who's going to make the cut and make it into the Slug Club. A lot of interesting characters there. You have these twins who are very silent. Um, then you have this guy who's downing all the ice cream, um, telling some weird story about his dad and his uncle. What's funny is he's Slughorn brought this guy in, Mark was it Marcus Belby, because... because Marcus Belby's uncle was part of the slug club at some point and that's why he picked Marcus Belby but what Marcus Belby tells him is like yeah I haven't seen my uncle in a long time my dad and him don't talk because my dad thinks potions are rubbish and like really knocking down what Slughorn does so I have to imagine he doesn't make the cut either. So at at the end of the session Harry has his first one-on-one with Slughorn since you know he met him at that house he begins his interrogation of Slughorn interrogation is a strong word but he starts asking questions and he becomes very forward with slughorn about uh did voldemort ever make this shelf you know of all his like collection of people what was he like and he's like i'm sorry but he killed my parents like i I, like excuse my me being forward about this and then you know slughorn can't offer that much he's like he's a quiet boy you know if the monster existed it was buried deep within and that's like that's all you get for now. But we've already seen that disproven because Harry got to meet Voldemort as a kid, so to speak, in the pensive memory. And he had these tendencies from a very young age. So Harry knows that the monster wasn't buried deep within. The monster was just below the surface, ready to escape at any moment. Yeah, if anything, it was Voldemort hiding. Like, it was there all along. Voldemort was just playing like a sociopath he knows what he is but he's not going to try to scare people off he's gonna get all the information he needs to do what he wants so we talked earlier about ron's first match so let's not repeat that but after that he's feeling such a high and of course lavender of course lavender comes in and takes advantage of that situation and here's a couple weird things i've noticed ron in this year looks like he's dressed from the 1970s his haircut the shirt he's wearing like it's just like a very distinct look i and thought I it was just hand-me-downs like that was my reasoning for it it's like he's he's living in hand-me-downs he has a very very interesting wardrobe but that's just because he doesn't go out and buy new clothes and also they're muggle clothes they're not wizard clothes so at this point i feel like everybody knows ron and hermione are on their way to getting together Ron and Hermione are destined for one another. I'm pretty sure even Lavender Brown freaking knows this. Yet she still tries to weasel her way in. And she does. And that's the thing. Like, Ron... 
Ron has his role in this too. He is an idiot for not, you know, picking up on Hermione's hints. She just invited him to the to Slughorn's ball or Christmas party or whatever you want to call it. And instead of waiting around for Ron to like, or she had the power this time around. It, it wasn't like the Triwizard Cup where she had to, or to wait around for him to ask her. She just boldly like said, well, I thought I'd take you. That was setting it up for the future and then lavender brown comes in and just kisses ron and then he goes with it so of course he's an idiot like but this this destroyed me when i read it for the first time and that's why i could never like i couldn't pick up that book again because i was so upset about it but you see how much it also destroys hermione which is so so hard to watch and I just, I I do, what I really like out of this scene, though, is the friendship between Harry and Hermione, and the fact that it's just friendship. It doesn't have to be anything more than that, and they're there for each other. They can console each other. You see that in the next one, too, because Ron struggles with a lot in all of these, whether it's the fourth one where he's not talking to Harry, whether it's, you know, this one where he and Hermione aren't friends it's not as obvious because we see the story through Harry's eyes, but Ron's struggling too with growing up, with being a teenager, with being the best friend of the chosen one, and and so on. I don't agree with his choices in coping with that, but, you know, like, he, he doesn't relate to Hermione in the same way that Harry does. When Harry and Hermione, it's just pure friendship, and I really like that. And then you get to kind of see Harry be like a bystander, in Ron and Hermione's relationship like he watches it all happen and you only see their relationship through his eyes so there's definitely gaps there but you know you kind of you see where they're headed to and Harry sees where they're heading it's so obnoxious Lavender like being on top of Ron like I, I remember you know being in high school seeing couples that are just like like one's like jumped on top of the other one and they're just like roughhousing around and just you just want to get away from those people like even if you're, you're not have a like an interest in either of them you're just like i don't really like being around these people who are like like they're pretending like no one else is around you know um this is an interesting shot like outside of hogwarts you see ron and lavender heading up the the stairs but then you also see astronomy tower and draco just brooding staring out into the distance um of course he's at the astronomy tower because that's foreshadowing what he's gonna have to do later so uh we get to the christmas party uh hermione's forced to take cormac there and harry i love when so they they're talking about who they're going to take and Harry thinks that they were going to go together as friends and Hermione had this whole thing planned to make Ron jealous but she's like well we need to figure out who you're going to take then and Harry's like someone cool and then it cuts to the next scene and it's Luna in this like metallic-y silver dress love Luna then Harry decides to take to Slunkhorn's party it's just so good and then she talks about sleepwalking. I've never been to this part of the castle. Well, not awake anyways. I sleepwalk. That's why I wear shoes to bed. I love the inclusion of that character. Just like such a great oddball, but in the best way. Not like, I guess a lot of people are thrown off by her, but like Harry like like respects her, you know. So uh, Neville is a servant at this party. You saw him at the tryout dinner 
um, with Harry and the others. But now he didn't make the slug club. He's now just a servant. He got ranked lower. It's not even like he had to do that. Like, it's not like it's, I don't think, extra credit or anything like that. It's just the exclusivity of this slug club that he's like, I'll take whatever I can get. You know, I will be a, a waiter at this thing if I have to. And I love that. So three things occur at the slug club Christmas party I want to talk about. The first thing is Harry notices Hermione's hiding from Cormac who swiftly falls in after her, but she also gets out. And then uh, there's like these like little hors d'oeuvres that like they make your breath smell really bad. So Harry gives a bunch to Cormac. And then it's like, what are these? And then Harry says, dragon balls. So it makes Cormac feel like sick because he's just eating like uh, dragon testicles. So then Snape comes in and right at that moment, Cormac, vomits right over uh, Snape's like shoes or whatever and uh, I love uh, Snape's reaction without like has without flinching from the vomit so, like you just earned yourself a month's detention McLagan. Snape then, doesn't really react to a lot of things he like very few times he actually has like a, a reaction or any kind of emotion on his face he and, it, and that helps him I guess pretend to be a death eater yeah, he's very good at keeping his true emotions at bay. The most emotion he shows is, uh, you know, getting sarcastic or, you know, getting snippy with people. But he does that with everyone. So it's like a very, uh, everything is level with him. So you can't tell where his real emotions are. The most emotion he saw out of him is when he was, uh, in the last story, when he was trying to teach Harry to with oculumency. So part two is Snape delivering a message to Harry that Dumbledore is out and about. We don't know where he is right now. He's traveling, you know, which uh, we find out what his traveling's about in the f- the third and fourth acts. Uh, and the third thing is uh, Draco, was he like, like crashing the party or something like that? I think he was probably doing his suspicious thing. And when Filch caught him, he tried to pretend like he was part of the slug club. But uh, Snape takes this as a moment to try to help Draco because Draco seems like he's really struggling with his task. And Draco doesn't want the help. Like Snape offers it, but I think Draco wants like a little bit of the satisfaction of doing it himself, mostly probably, mostly probably earning the respect back of his family or for his family that his dad lost by going to Azkaban, and then also to not be killed by the Dark Lord. So he feels this, like, he's like, I don't want your help. I think he feels very alone. It's like Harry in the last one who felt really alone and, like, he had to do it by himself and there was nobody else to help him. I think Draco's feeling that significantly, but he doesn't have the friendships that Harry does. Sure, there's Crab and Goyle and we see Pansy Parkinson in this one, but none of them quite get it. And I mean, I think it's a Slytherin trait too that they're not going to be the kind of people that are going to stand up and help you when you are doing something like that. At this point, does uh, Snape tell Draco he made an unbreakable vow to protect him and help him complete his mission? He might have already known and Snape was reinforcing it because here's the thing. Snape's like, don't fuck this up for me either. 
because Snape made a, he put himself out there to help Draco on a huge way. If you don't keep that unbreakable vow, you die. You know, like Snape put himself out there and Draco's causing trouble. So, so the, this encounter reminds me of because Harry's overlooking it, Snape interrogating Quirrell in the first story, except it's a slightly different context. They're trying to achieve the same mission versus. Quirrell and Snape were doing opposite things. Like, Snape was trying to stop Quirrell. Here, he's trying to help Draco complete that mission. Um, and Harry heard, hears this and asks Ron on the train back, because they're going home for the holidays to the borough, uh, what an unbreakable vow is and what happens if you don't follow through with it. And Ron says, you die. You had asked about that when we talked about that, I think, uh, one or two episodes ago. Like, what happens if you don't do it? There's your answer. What I do love about the scene, though, of Harry and Ron on the train is Harry, like, Lavender comes over into the window and she does this weird thing where she, like, breathes on it and draws a heart. And Ron's, like, so uncomfortable as it's happening, but Harry's even more uncomfortable. So he's, like, trying to play with the seat and pretend he doesn't see what's happening. And it's just, it's uncomfortable for all of us, but in such a funny way. This is what I'm talking about with, like, the rom com kind of humor. The rom-com. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know. I'm here forever. So, um, so all right. They're at the burrow for Christmas. Uh, so the Weasleys are there. And Lupin and their Tonks are there. So it looks like they're an item now too, right? Which we they didn't establish. They just accepted. That yeah, I think Lupin in the books Tonks it definitely gets established a little bit more. But yeah, it just happened here. And... I think for the sake of the story, of course. Harry's trying to convince them that Malfoy's up to something, but nobody quite believes him. And I think a lot of it is because it comes from this like gut feeling that Harry has. One other thing I'll say about Tonks is she seems she doesn't seem like the same character we saw in Order. She's a lot more reserved. Maybe it's you know taking care of Lupin, especially as he gets closer to one of his cycles. That like Tonks is no longer that. That person who's like a like almost like a rebel. She seems like she's much more like reserved. And maybe it's just having Voldemort, you know, like this growing danger that's making her more serious, a more serious person. I think it's part of that too, but she also really loves Lupin and he loves her, but he doesn't think he's fit to be with anybody else, so I feel like he keeps pulling away from her, too. I think that was something discussed in the book. Like, he doesn't want to commit to Tonks or be with Tonks because he thinks his condition makes him unworthy of love or he doesn't want to put somebody else through that. He thinks Tonks deserves something different. And I think that's weighing on her, too, because she fell in love. She found somebody, you know? She wants to be with him. And he's pulling back at times. I do love that Lupin returns because he was the best professor and you get to see him only for, he's only in this one scene of the whole movie, but just to have him return for a little bit. And he's probably, you know, Harry still remembers him as his favorite professor. So they have that tight bond. So it means something when Lupin is telling Harry that don't let your prejudice, you know, fool you like, cause he's against Snape and Draco, you know, he has a prejudice against the both of them, assuming that they're, concocting to kill Dumbledore which is a nice point to make for Harry because maybe with Malfoy that's the truth but it's not with Snape 
and Harry adamantly believed like I mean obviously he watched Snape kill Dumbledore so of course you're going to believe that but he doesn't want to see another side of it because his prejudice is getting in the way at that point you do see Harry like kind of getting obsessed with Draco to the point where like his reason is leaving him even though he's correct to suspect Malfoy it's kind of he's not doing it with a you know, he's not thinking about it. He's just going for it. Do you think it's the fact that nobody else believes him that makes him so obsessive about it? Like he wants to prove something to everybody who's not listening to him? I think he's, once he forms an impression, like it's hard for him to have his mind changed about it. He needs like something drastic to happen for him to change his mind the way he felt about Sirius before he learned the truth about Sirius. But do you think like, as I mean, the, the obsessiveness with it, I don't think we've really seen Harry get too obsessive in the past and now it's like a real, like it takes it to a whole nother level. Do you think that that comes from the fact that Ron and Hermione aren't really believing him? Lupin isn't quite believing him. They're all skeptical that Malfoy's responsible, but Harry knows in his heart of hearts that Malfoy is up to something. Is that disbelief or doubt in his gut feeling what's really driving this obsession? Well, he's had a history of believing in something and no one else believe it. Maybe he has somebody else, like one or two other people follow him. But he constantly is going against the grain, going against, you know, the wind, where no one believes him that Voldemort was back. No one, like, everyone thought he was the, you know, heir of Slytherin, that Sirius was... uh, Everyone told him to stay away from Sirius, not telling him information. So I feel like he's already been trained by accident to do things his own way. And the more that people tell him to not do something, the more he's going to go after it. You know, I think that people are downplaying it. That means he has to upplay it. That makes sense. What happens next is kind of weird, though, because after uh, Tonks and Lupin get up, Jenny comes and sits down, and then Arthur gets a little awkward and leaves. And then Jenny feeds Harry, which felt a little weird, and it's like, don't you trust me? And then Ron just sits down with a giant plate of pies right between them and starts eating. It's just the weirdest scene. I see what you mean with that. I noticed the camera started getting closer because it looks like that Harry and Jenny are going to kiss. Like, the camera angle gets closer and closer, and then Ron just really plops down. And they almost kiss again before the attack on the burrow. And she ties his shoes, which is really weird, but then the attack on the burrow happens. And something interesting is, so Bellatrix Lestrange is Tonks's aunt, technically, because Andromeda Tonks, Tonks's mother, is Bellatrix and Narcissa's sister, but I think she was burned out of that um, family tree on the wall in the Grimwald place. So it's it's interesting because Tongs is part of the scene and so is Bellatrix. But I don't think they actually really know each other. Yeah, so this, I mean, this is really intense. But Harry goes running after her because that is the woman that killed Sirius Black. And it, and it feels like a repeat of that scene in the ministry. I kind of struggle with the scene. Uh, well, I really liked how Lupin was the first one to notice something's not right here. Someone's out there in the bushes because I think because Fenrir is out there and it wasn't Fenrir the one who cursed Lupin with the like the lycanthropy. I believe so too, and I think it was like almost like animal instinct that Lupin noticed because 
Tonks said the first night of the cycle is the worst. So he's probably already really tuned into that. And then something is off, you know? Yeah. Other than that, I, I don't know how I feel about this scene. Like, what was the point of the burrow being attacked? Is it is that nowhere safe anymore? Because the burrow was rebuilt by the, the next one. So it feels like this was just done as a stunt. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's trying to convey nowhere is safe. I, I think it's also trying to reinforce the Harry-Ginny relationship. And I'm, I'm sure there was a deeper purpose in the book. What's really hard to watch is like Molly's face when the burrow burns down. That's just heartbreaking. She's just like, oh, and, and Arthur tells Harry earlier that Molly doesn't leave the house some days. And I mean, we can relate <laughs> what's going on in the world, but it's seeing Molly's like Molly's place of safety, like where Molly feels comfortable that's destroyed and then where is safe in the world hogwarts isn't safe harry didn't stay there for the holidays anymore he went to the burrow and then the burrow got burned down there's nothing left but i see what you mean about the scene i do like that arthur is treating harry as an adult now like you wouldn't tell a kid it's like oh my wife you know the mother of your best friend is like having trouble leaving the home like we're, we're afraid you know, you don't tell kids you're afraid. So it's like Harry's leveled up to the point where like Arthur and Dumbledore view him as equals. Like you you have a fair share in this fight just like everyone else. Where you're five, they were hesitant to give him all the information they did, needed, that he needed. Now it's, they view him just like anybody else, you know. You have an equal stake in this fight. With that, we go to Act 3 sluggish memory which is the return to hogwarts to the viewing of slughorn's true memory which really reveals a lot about voldemort's past harry gets to know voldemort a little bit better know his enemy more get to see him when he's younger i don't want to say it humanizes him but i think it gives harry some insight onto where voldemort began and, I mean, everything that we've seen in him so far is showing that he's always kind of been evil at the core, I suppose. Um, and this is I'm gonna, it, technically the last scene that we get to see of Voldemort when he's younger. We'll get to see an uh, unmodified version of this memory later. But the book Pensive stuff dives so much deeper into Voldemort's history and this book just uh, this movie just barely scratched the surface so Harry returns to the pensive with Dumbledore um this time it's not Dumbledore's memory but it's Slughorn's memory that he must have given to Dumbledore right at some point and Tom Riddle after a slug club party asks uh, Slughorn about something but it's like faded out you can't hear what he says and Slughorn's like what did you say how dare you say that never say that to me again and then like the memory quickly ends and then Dumbledore says the thing about this memory is it's a fake it's tampered with uh, and he needs Harry to find the true memory it's like why would uh, Harry's like why would uh, Slughorn tamper with his own memory perhaps he was ashamed I feel like it's almost like evidence a little history for you but President uh, president's past they had tapes in the the white house to record all their meetings um nixon got rid of certain tapes because certain questionable activities were going on so t 
tapes that would have been useful in a in a court hearing about what he was doing regarding the Watergate incident and various other things were gone. It's like, oh, where's the tapes from? You know, these periods of time, they're they're missing. Uh, they were going to charge him for obstruction of justice, and that's why he resigned. But I'm getting way off topic. But it's like I understand the idea to tamper with your memory because you don't want to incriminate yourself, right? But beyond that, there's the moral incrimination, not just the legal thing, but it's like I feel bad that I allowed this horrible person gain access to such a dark thing. But I think that this shows Slughorn's true Slytherin because... That's selfish. It, it really is. And that information could help bring down Voldemort. While maybe what Slug, what information Slughorn provided perhaps set Voldemort on, it sounded like Voldemort was already on that path. It enlightened him a little bit more. But now we can take him down. Regardless of what happened, you know, we can figure it out and take him down. But him not providing that memory was very selfish and that's i mean like him in the beginning not wanting to really join either side he's self-interested and wants to protect himself not giving dumbledore the memory really rejecting harry right now that is his true slytherin and that's as soon as harry asks him about it that's when slughorn turns on him i thought that happened very quickly too and i wasn't a huge fan of that so what you're saying happened really quickly was uh, Harry's discussion with Slughorn about trying to, that memory. Like, oh, with, with, I'm trying to research like magic. Is there any magic you're not allowed to teach or something like that? And he's trying to get the information. Well, it's interesting because Harry does it in a way that was very similar to how Voldemort did it. I think to hint at that, but I mean, I mean, I think it's a lot of things why I think it happened quickly. I think it's because we don't really get to see Voldemort as much when he was younger and really build that up to get to the scene. Number one, number two, I think that maybe there's a few missing things between Harry and Slughorn. We see once Harry excel at potions by using the book, the Half Blood Prince's potion book. This movie is called Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. Harry Potter relies heavily on that potions book to succeed in class and to win Professor Slughorn over. We don't see a lot of that here. And forget even seeing the Half-Blood Prince in any of this. Um, Snape, actually, the Half-Blood Prince. And then we just jump to the scene where Harry's like, okay, I'm going to sneak this information out. And Slughorn shuts him down. And then shuts him down again every other time he tried. It just... I think there's a lot of missing pieces, which is maybe why for me it feels like it's going too quick. So after this, Harry defeated because he can't get information out of Slughorn, finds Ron, like, stargazing with a stupid fucking look on his face because he's been hit with a love potion that wasn't meant for him. So now he's in love. He's infatuated with this other girl who who was uh, into Harry. It was meant for Harry, but... Ron ate the chocolates. Well, he ate all of them because he could see like a trail of all these chocolate wrappers and he's like completely like out of it. And then Harry's like, oh, whatever, man. You don't even know this person. And then Ron throws a pillow at him. It's like, I do love her. It's like, do you even know her? No. Could, can you introduce us? It's funny. And it's, Harry's like kind of like 
doesn't want to put up with Ron's shit at first because he has no idea what's happening. And then once he realizes like that Ron's acting out of character, that's when he's like, all right, it's time to get some help and kill two birds with one stone. No pun intended for Malfoy. Um, <laughs> take, <laughs> but um, decides to go back to Slughorn, get an into his office and have him help Ron. And I love that. Uh, what Slughorn says, what's wrong when, what's wrong with Wenby? You know, the name that he has for Ron keeps changing. Um, that uh, you could tell like, it's like, oh, why did you come to me, Harry? I thought someone as astute as yourself with potions could handle this. It's like, oh, I thought this could use more professional on this matter. And then Ron hugs uh, uh, Slughorn is like, hello, darling, fancy a drink. So they're able to, so Slughorn, with a, his own concoction, is quickly able to fix Ron. But then he offers drinks, which he thinks is mead, but it's actually poison. So they saved Ron from the love poison, but then Ron gets poisoned immediately. And the first time I saw it, it's like, what happened? Like, wh- like when they saved him, did he react poorly to the the antidote or something like that? No, it was this poison mead that was swapped out, right? Yeah, It was supposed to be out. given to... Dumbledore. Yeah, no. I think Malfoy swamped it out because this was another kind of like, you know, indirect way of getting to Dumbledore. Which his heart is not in this to kill Dumbledore, even though he hates Dumbledore. So uh, Ron is poisoned. It looks like he might die because he's foaming for the mouth and convulsing on the floor. Harry saves him in a pinch by using a bazaar which is another reason they didn't show his use of the half-blood prince book they show him holding on to it everybody telling him to get rid of it we don't even know who the half-blood prince is but harry found out about the bazaar through the half-blood prince book but we don't see that and that's another like piece that's missing here for the for me this is like to be to be fair snape in his very first lesson in uh, potions year one was describing what a bazaar was could save someone who's from an inch from death he does but the connection has to be made between snape bringing that up in the first one and that being in the book of the half-blood prince that just wasn't there so it's like how the fuck did harry know that do you think he really remembered the lesson from his first year of the class he hated the most with the teacher he hated the most i don't think so there needed to be more of the Half-Blood Prince in this, whether it's more Snape, which could have definitely been used, or more of Harry with the book, Harry in potions class, Harry trying to win Slughorn over through that. Ugh. I love you so much. Um, so we get to the hospital. You know, Ron's recovering from the poison, the poisoning. And all these professors there, uh, was it Slughorn, Dumbledore, Snape, McGonagall, Madame Pomfrey's there too, I think. And Harry, Hermione as well. And Ginny. Uh, Lavender shows up. It's like, oh, where is he? You know, and this is, it gets real awkward because everyone's there. 
the teachers are watching it like it's some teenage drama and not reacting but like it's not even like they're all right i don't really want to hear this i don't care they're watching the teenage drama unfold in front of them <laughs> lavender's like he must have been asking for me my one one and then hermione's like trying to explain well i'm his friend that's why i'm here and lavender's getting all snippy with her and then ron talks in his sleep and he says hermione's name which of course makes hermione happy it makes all of us happy and then lavender runs out of there like so upset which is fine but the professors are just fucking watching it's so funny and then even dumbledore makes a comment right about he's like ah to be young and in love uh to be young and feel love's keen sting yeah um because there's so much like dark you know with voldemort and you know fighting against the dark you know it's 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 very easy to forget all the the funny things about teenage life and this love triangle i'm not a fan of it but it does like help balance the movie out in terms of you know humorous versus very serious like uh foreboding you know because these films are darker and darker both visually and in uh in theme but uh it's important to still have a laugh here and there and I, I do love this, that, you know, Ron and Hermione becoming a thing. Also, Harry and Ginny becoming a thing, but you really like the Ron and Hermione stuff because we, we've seen both of them from the beginning. So the next thing we are, so we go to Malfoy and before you see Malfoy kind of go off and do a suspicious thing, you definitely see those birds. And I mentioned it before, how they kind of disappear. What's interesting is there's a black bird and a white bird and white you know, in, I think, like, literature and movies and stuff like that tends to symbolize, like, innocence and youth and, and, you know, or, like, innocence and purity and so on, where black is dark and evil. Like, you see that in the Dementors. Their shadows show up as black. The R's show up with the white shadows and the, the other one. So, the white bird goes first and the white bird doesn't survive. And then the black bird actually does survive. And I almost feel like this is like symbolizing like Malfoy's kind of like loss of innocence as he goes further on with this plan that he has. It kind of goes into the prevailing theme I'm seeing with this film. And that's discussion of kind of related to loss of innocence, but um, the battle for one's soul and how much do you value your soul? You know? Okay. So I already did ask the question about someone killing the bird. Um, so Harry is very on to Draco. We even get to see the Marauder's Map again. We haven't seen that in a while. And Harry's, of course, obsessing over where Draco's whereabouts are. Um, when Harry realizes that Draco was definitely behind the Katie Bell attack, he chases him into the bathrooms, right? And this is like a very physical, visceral fight that they, they have. So they don't tell you in the movies, but the bathroom that Draco had, I think, kind of been going to or like utilizing as this place for him to get a break. Because think about it, they're Slytherin common room full of other Slytherins, Slytherin boys dormitory full of other people. Like for him to have a moment of peace, especially outside of the room of requirement where he's doing this very dark thing, he goes to this bathroom, he continues to revisit it. And it's Moaning Myrtle's bathroom. So I think that they kind of like commiserate together. So unfortunately, we don't get to see Moaning Myrtle in this one. But when Draco gets to the bathroom, he ditches the sweater vest, which I thought was a great idea. Probably shouldn't have put it on in the first place. But, you know, decisions. 
You're adorable. Um, so before that, Harry's looking in the Half-Blood Prince book, and he sees the spell. The one sec- other time he's looking yeah. at it. Sectum Sempra for enemies. So it's usually for potions, but there's a spell in there uh, uh, to attack. And Harry unleashes it after a really brutal fight with Draco in the bathrooms. Can I just say that it's yeah. not a smart idea to use a spell you have no idea what the fuck it does? Like, Avada Kedavra is technically for your enemies too, but you wouldn't use that on anybody. You have no clue what this does and you're just going to use the spell that comes to mind in this fight? Not a smart idea, Harry. So, I'm curious, like, there's the killing curse, but there's other curses you could kill someone with, right? In a sense. Well, Snape has always been interested in the dark arts, so for him to develop this spell. So this is an interesting comparison between Snape and Voldemort too, because Snape grew up kind of unloved, right? He grew up bullied, especially by like Harry's father and Sirius Black and so on. So he, I don't think he shows the same tendencies towards evil as much as Voldemort does. And I think that's because he's got Lily in his life and that's what the answer has been all the time is as long as you have love, then you're okay. Love was not something Voldemort ever had. So yeah, so Snape had kind of love in his life, this, you know, through Lily, but he was still, you know, bullied and he felt alone. And I think like, you know, he definitely, his personality favored Slytherin tendencies for sure. So it made sense for him to kind of come up with spells that would be more toward, like more dark magic. That was something he was always interested in. But I think he kind of invented that, you know, I think that, you know, perhaps it's possible to invent darker spells or do horrible things. But I think that there's like one killing curse, you know. Okay, I like the idea of Snape like tinkering and creating his own things. You've seen many other wizards, especially at their time of Hogwarts, create things. Voldemort creates, creates his own Horcruxes. Um, you have the Marauders create their own map, uh, and you know become anime guy. Fred and George experiment with all their joke magic. Uh, so it makes sense that there's other students past or present making their own spells potions you know devices so i love that uh, i love that like this is harry's guide uh to like advancing through this story but it also belongs to snape and you don't learn that till the very end and of course that's the only person you can't use it on sort of his guide like very little appearance and that's I'm, I'm still a little better about that i think they could have done better so when I like talk about not appreciating this film, like I don't think of that, but that's another context to understand, especially after I go and read the books. Like, will I still view this as my bottom pick? Still very likely. So Harry uses Sectum Sempra on uh, Draco, and that just levels him. And you see Draco on the floor, blood coming out. You know, from he's in a pool of his own blood, and there's blood all over his shirt. Like, there's a little CGI blood. It's a little off-putting. However, Snape comes in, gives Harry a stare, and then just goes in and saves Draco, of course, because he knows that spell. He knows how to counter it. I'm also curious that spell not only healed Draco, but his shirt no longer had blood stains on it either. You know, is that part of it? It looked like the blood went back to him, so there wasn't as much blood loss. I don't, 
I don't actually know um, there, but yeah, of course, Snape's the one who knew how to counter it. And then it also lets Snape know that Harry's found something that used to belong to him. So Ginny notices the effect that the book has on Harry. Uh, So she has him, you know, throw it away, essentially. Well, she throws it away for him in the Room of Requirement because it's having such a negative impact on him. And I like your connection with Tom Riddle's diary, how badly it influenced her. And this is where they share their first kiss because she asked Harry to close his eyes. Oh, is it her line about the... uh, being in the room of requirement of course they notice the vanishing cabinet you'll never know what you'll find up here and that's right before their first kiss okay so harry has felix felices right he has this and he hasn't used it yet he almost used it uh, he said he used it on ron but of course he didn't but now he's been struggling to get information out of slughorn so he figures it's funny slughorn gave this to him now he can use that in a way against slughorn to get that information but how does it even work it just gives you luck so harry drinks it and it's like he's being guided by an unseen force oh i think i should go to hagrid's and his personality immediately shifts like he just knows what to do he doesn't know how to describe it he just knows where to go i feel like it's true like uninterrupted connection to your intuition there like without the ego stepping in and starting to doubt you this is like true like no, no i'm gonna do this even though hermione's like you have to go talk to slither and follow this path we know exactly what he does harry's like no i'm going to hagrid's like you just he just knows and in the books I'm, i feel like i'm gonna say this a lot this time as much as i didn't like the book i didn't like the movie more than i didn't like the book uh ha- aragog dies and hagrid you don't see really see hagrid this movie right Hagrid does tell the trio that Aragog dies and Ron's like, I'm not fucking going anywhere near there. So they weren't planning on attending Aragog's funeral, but after Harry takes Felix Felicis, he does. And in the movie, he just kind of happens to stumble across it, but not before stumbling across Slughorn trying to steal shit out of the uh, Herbology greenhouse, which is, again, another point towards slughorn showing his slither inside he's stealing things to sell because he makes like a very like weird comment about you know these go for 10 galleons on the the black market so and of course i wouldn't sell them you know just just something to keep on hand and then of course for academic purposes only exactly interest for academic interest so then taking aragog's like venom this is like really like kind of (laughs) like rude selfish self-interested things when Hagrid's clearly struggling um but then he does something nice like let me say a few words but within those few words it's also kind of like a little off it's like says something about like your body will decay about Aragog which is on the dark side feels like Slughorn is someone you would let like borrow like a a movie or CD I know we're beyond that point right now because we live in a digital age but you, he would borrow like a like a CD or a movie from you, and he wouldn't return. It's like, oh, I'll get it back to you, but he just never gets it. He's very self-interested. He He's obsessed with the... So he has that slug club because he's interested in collecting things, right? He's not so interested in the person, but more of the prestige they have. And he's like almost like sucking out their prestige like and adding to his prestige by being associated with them we get to see harry the sass master return this time around where harry's like well i'm off you know like 
and we're watching this kind of like what you're supposed to be getting information from him and so Corin's like harry and then harry's like sir and then it's a really funny scene and then he's like well then come on and just starts walking and lets slughorn follow him and that's of course when they stumble upon hagrid and aragog and hagrid's like so distraught and he says that uh, acromantulas are misunderstood creatures which is also what he says about dragons i think it's just all creatures for hagrid are misunderstood and he's like i think it's the eyes that get them the you know and then harry's like and the pincers he's just like on a whole he's just on a whole nother level this time around with like not even caring and just making jokes harry i think it's probably the felix felices that that gets to him i love that like as soon as he takes it and as he's leaving the corridor he runs into another student who it doesn't matter who it is he's like hi Oh, so Slughorn's extracting the venom, right? And he actually breaks one of uh, Aragog's, Aragog's pincers and just puts it off to the side. I'm curious, did Aragog die out there or did he die in the Forbidden Forest and Hagrid carried him out there to be buried? Actually, I think something happened. He did die in the Forbidden Forest and whatever spiders do with dead spiders was what was going to happen, but Hagrid didn't want to let that happen, so he took Aragog to bury him properly. I love that Hagrid says, this is my oldest friend, you know, like, oh, because he does view creatures differently than humans. So after that, uh, Hagrid and Slug get really drunk and they're talking about, you know, like stories about Hagrid getting Aragog and uh, Slughorn getting, having a fish who came from a student of his. Named Francis. And what I really love about this scene is that it's taking place in Hagrid's hut. Slughorn and Hagrid are at the table. You very clearly see Slughorn smaller next to Hagrid. And you see Harry sitting in a chair that he's too small for, kind of. But once Hagrid falls asleep, it's very apparent that Slughorn looks small, like he doesn't belong in this hut. And the way that the camera views Harry is he doesn't look small anymore. He looks almost like like bigger or he fits in here or whatever whatever the case is but the the panning back between slughorn and harry slughorn's small and it feels like he's getting weaker and he's going to give in and harry's in full control and confidence and, and so on and gets what he needs out of slughorn he takes slughorn's story about this fish that was given to him by a student but like the it, like the story about it being just a, a lily sinking 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 and turn to a fish a lily does that mean it was gifted by lily potter uh so he it's clear that slughorn has a reverence for lily harry uses that reverence to turn it on slughorn to get that information out of him slughorn even says like i know why you're here and i can't give it to you and then harry turns it on him and asks him to be brave like lily was you know the reason why harry survived voldemort's attack on him Lily sacrificed herself. She was brave. Now you need to be brave like her too. Otherwise, that bowl will remain empty forever. When he says, poof, you know, like that fish was just gone one day. I wonder if it disappeared when Lily died. He says it, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, the bowl will be gone forever. Will be remain empty forever if you continue to be a coward like this, essentially. So he does give up the memory. And Dumbledore and Harry finally get to see it. And that missing word, Horcrux. And Voldemort has a lot of questions about it. Could you split it, say, 
seven times and it's definitely more like insight into what happened and it lets Harry and Dumbledore know that Voldemort kept his soul alive in other places in order to make sure he could never die like one you know wasn't enough for him and it's interesting as they're talking about it Dumbledore shows him the diary says that that was a horcrux he was suspicious of that And then he shows the ring that belonged to Voldemort's mother. And Harry touches it for a second and has a couple flashes. And the way that Dumbledore looks at him as he says, like, you know, like, dark magic leaves traces. It's like he's very suspicious that maybe Harry is a horcrux too. Like, I think he kind of knew all along that Harry had that potential to be a horcrux. That that was the trace of dark magic left behind from Voldemort and then it's Harry that changes the subject he doesn't pick up on that otherwise maybe Voldemort would have otherwise maybe Dumbledore would have brought it up but Harry moves on to the next thing interesting thing about that memory they see talk of horcruxes is uh, you know what is Voldemort's main goal in life it looks like with these horcruxes these horcruxes he doesn't care what it takes he wants to ensure he can never die and he's willing to do that at the cost of his own soul. Where some people know that life is fleeting and it's better to have their soul than give it up for immortality of some kind. And it goes back to the first story, Sorcerer's Stone, where Dum- Voldemort's chasing after this Sorcerer's Stone, which has the elixir of life, right? You can live forever if you get your hands on it, right? Chose to drink unicorn blood to stay alive, even though what it destroys the soul of the person who drinks it or it's you live a half-life it's a cursed life like it it keeps you going even if you're an inch from death but you can no longer have a normal life again after doing such a dark act because it's like violating uh a sacred you know like law like just like murders like violating natural law you know killing the unicorn killing another soul and that's what's required to create a horcrux now he has call it like a, a backup of his soul computer backup of it uh what he wants to do seven times what i think seven's like the magic number right seven harry potter books seven horcruxes of course there's actually eight just like there's actually eight movies but it's uh, interesting voldemort's main goal in life is to just be infinite to live forever because someone who can live forever would be the most powerful person Voldemort didn't want to be beaten by anyone, including the concept of death. So he's willing to split his soul. And I feel like this entire story is about people questioning the value of their soul. What are they willing to do and what they're willing not to do to keep their soul intact? So we move on to our final act, um, which goes from the cave all the way to the end of the film. That's called the Phoenix Lament. This starts with Dumbledore says he's found the third Horcrux location. Of course, there's going to be four more after this, but uh, he goes to Harry and says, once again, I must ask too much of you. And before they leave, you see Dumbledore talking to Snape about something. And Snape is like, why are you having me doing this? And Dumbledore insists to do that. You agreed to do it, Severus, you have to. And Snape kind of just walks off, pissed off, and he sees Harry. Gives him a stare and continues walking on. And uh, Dumbledore, who has the privilege of apparating, being the only one who can apparate in and out of Hogwarts, takes Harry to this cave not the cave of wonders but this very visually beautiful 
and haunting territory right up against the ocean, right? All the colors are faded, but the ocean's like really powerful and rocking. They're on this rock, and this cave kind of looks like a like a jagged triangle. Like it looks unnatural almost, like the space underneath the, the cliffs, right? I love how the visuals for this movie, like all the color appears to be faded from the scene. It's very black and white. As soon as they go in the cave, it feels like it's only black and white. You see those crystals they're up next against, and that's like the only light in this dark cave. And uh, Dumbledore says Voldemort has protected his Horcruxes very well. He does not want people to get into here. Of course, you have to pay to enter. By paying to enter, it weakens people who seek to bring him down, which is drawing blood. You see Dumbledore's hand, and it's getting blacker and blacker. So he cuts his hand to pay for entry. And they enter, and it's this giant black lake with a little island with light in the distance. But how do you get over there? I think Dumbledore summons something that where a chain comes out out of the water, and a boat appears. So with this scene with the boat over the black water reminds me of, because we know what's underneath the water. As soon as you touch that water, uh, the Inferni, the zombies would come out and attack you, right? Oh, yeah. Like out of a horror movie. Despite the fact that you know it's coming, you still feel that jolt. I love how the camera focuses on the water and even has one shot that's coming from underneath the water. And you can see hair. And this scene always reminds me of like, what is that called? The river sticks. It's like the river into hell. And they have to like use a boat to cross the river. But don't go in the water because it's filled with dead souls, right? Are you talking about Hercules? Honey, you mean Hercules. Okay. <laughs> But also the dead marshes in Lord of the Rings because the, the dead spirits that try to pull Frodo in add him to the collection of souls, right? So we get to the, the little island where the Horcrux is stored. Of course, it's under this liquid that you cannot get to it till you can't get the liquid out by just tossing it over. When Dumbledore realizes he has to drink it, the light fades on his face like it's getting darker around his face. Uh, oh, no, no, it's after he takes his first sip. And he warns Harry, no matter what happens, you can't um, let me stop. Okay, just to make it a little light for a second, I'm thinking of Michael Scott when he's in the, was it uh, he, Michael Scott doing his Houdini trick? Oh, he's, he's in the straight jacket. He's yeah, like, no, so matter, no matter how hard I cry or beg, you cannot let me out. You cannot give me the key. Is it weird that this isn't the first reference to Michael's comparison between Michael Scott and Dumbledore that we've had? So... Someone has to drink poisoned water, essentially. Dumbledore volunteers because he doesn't want Harry to do it because he sees Harry is way more valuable. Dumbledore also knows that he's about to die. He knows what's going to happen, and that's why he was talking to Snape beforehand because he's like, I'm not, you know, he knows he's not going to make it. He wants to make sure that Snape is going to do what he's supposed to do, and he knows he's going to die, so it's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to benefit him for Harry to take this. It's going to, the situation needs Dumbledore to do it. I don't know, why is he not letting people know that he's actually cursed? Like, wouldn't have Harry understood better? Like, I wonder why Vold uh, Dumbledore felt the need to just not bring that up. Harry's got that connection with Voldemort. I don't think he wants Voldemort to find out that Snape could potentially be working for the other side. He wants Voldemort to have full trust in that. And that goes back to Dumbledore's main objective was serving the greater good. Dumbledore sacrificed himself. He's kind of sacrificing Harry in all of this as well. But he's also sacrificing himself. He'll do anything for that greater good, bringing Voldemort down and stopping him. 
Do you think uh, Dumbledore has, like, guilt for bringing Tom Riddle in? I noticed, like, when we first start with the pensive scenes, Harry asks him, did you know that you that was the Dark Lord? Like, did you know he would become this? Like, if I had known, and then he kind of cuts himself off. If he did know, what would he have done back then? Would he have killed Tom Riddle as a boy? If he knew Tom Riddle would become who he did? He pauses. He he doesn't finish that thought. So I'm curious. And now, everything he's doing now, all these calculated moves, getting Harry in the right position, teaching him everything he needs to know when he needs to know it, having him grow up away from everyone else, getting priming him for this one task to bring down Voldemort. Dumbledore makes Harry promise that he'll do whatever he says, no matter what. Dumbledore says as Harry's, you know, feeding him the water and, and over and over again like he's supposed to do uh, it's all my fault it's all my fault and you see this more in the next one where you get to learn a little bit more about Dumbledore's backstory his sister relationship with Grindelwald so on but I think that that's kind of where Dumbledore's head was at when he was drinking these where he was forced to go that dark memory that he had to which was an interesting like not ahead to the future it's really painful to watch Dumbledore go through so much pain, like asking Harry to kill him. I sometimes feel this is a really long recording session for us that I audibly shout out loud, kill me, kill me. So I'm, I'm feeling like Dumbledore right now. I'm sorry to our, our listeners that may hurt your ears. The conversation is good, but we keep getting interrupted and have to pause. You listening don't hear that because we edit the pauses out. Despite Dumbledore being weak, after what happened, he's asking for water, asking for water. Harry goes to deliver. So, of course, it triggers the bodies coming out of the water and Harry getting pulled in. And I just love the scene where he's, he's going under and going under and then the fire comes and it, it kills the one that got him. And Harry's coming up out of the water and he comes up amongst all these flames. And this is a scene that truly shows Dumbledore's power where he's standing there with his wand wielding all these flames around to get rid of uh, the body, the inferi that are killing them or after them. And it just, it was such an amazing visual. I love that they show this is Dumbledore's last feat of strength before he dies. You know, he's dying. Even if Snape didn't kill him, kill him that night, he would have died soon. Um, I think it's very important that they show this, you know. As he's about to go out, he still has this one last, you know, task. He can use all of his magic to save Harry and himself from these water zombies, essentially, um, and get them out of there. Before they were done with the water, Harry has that one last scoop of, what's that called? Um, That dark magic water. This is Harry's idol. The one person who was like invincible to everything. The one person he always looked up to. He looked up to Sirius, but he revered Dumbledore as the greatest wizard and now Dumbledore is on his knees crying begging for death just like how Voldemort would have done to many of his victims so it's just like it's really a sobering thing for Harry to experience but they get out of it thanks to Dumbledore's last feat of strength and back to Hogwarts of course Hogwarts looks so dark now. McGonagall notices there's something in the air. She like sends the students back to their dormitories. Something's up. You see Snape too. He knows something's up. And everybody's feeling a little bit off. So 
You follow Draco to the room of requirement. And as you follow him down the hallway, you see some students who we don't know. They're just hanging out in the dark hallway. It's almost like they're not even there because like the clouds, like the, the, the gathering clouds over Hogwarts are so dark. Like everything has like been blocked out. And the only thing you see now is Draco moving to his objective, the room of requirement, and he opens up the vanishing cabinet. This time it works. Black smoke come, emerges, and the devils are literally inside the walls. He goes to kill Dumbledore. So Dumbledore wants Harry to go down and to not be seen or do anything. And Draco and Dumbledore kind of have a conversation. So before he asks Harry to just go hide and not come out, he asked him to go find Snape and not take him to the not take Dumbledore to the hospital. I need Snape. Bring Snape Only here. Only Snape. Don't talk to anybody yeah. else. But Dumbledore realizes there's not enough time. So Harry, go hide. Do not come out. And then when Harry's in hiding, he sees Snape down there who points his wand at him at first and then is like, shh. So yeah, Snape keeps him safe. Yeah. And this is where Dumbledore kind of insults Draco because he's like, your actions were so weak. You, your heart can't really have been in it when he tries to kill him before. And I mean, it, it does definitely speaks to the fact that maybe Malfoy is more Slytherin in the way that Slughorn is Slytherin, where he's self-interested, but he's not necessarily a bad guy. He's done bad things, but that's the influence of the Dark Lord. Yeah, Draco is like a horrible person, bully, but he's not a person who do unspeakable acts. And you can see it's weighing on him this entire film. Like when he's in the bathroom, he's like crying because he does not want to go through this. He feels forced to do it. Then he said, he's trying to like convince himself to do it in front of Dumbledore. It's like, I have to do this. I have to kill you as he's crying. And Dumbledore is like, years ago, I met a boy who made all the wrong choices. Please let me help you. Dumbledore doesn't care about dying at this point. He just cares about saving Draco's soul because he knows who should kill him. During this conversation, Draco disarms Dumbledore's wand. That wand's going to be very important because it's the Elder Wand, one of the Deathly Hollows. So that's the second of the three. We know. Harry has the Invisibility Cloak. Dumbledore has the wand. And we'll get to the third item and all the importance of all three of them together in our last act, which I'm so excited about. Snape steps in. At this point, I mean, I, Bellatrix is trying to convince Malfoy to do it. Malfoy is afraid. He's about to lower his lawn. And Dumbledore, it looks like he's begging Snape for his life, but really he's begging Snape to do what he needs to do. And Snape kills Dumbledore, which I'm sure took a lot out of Snape to do. And Harry watches wordlessly as he thought Snape was going in there to intervene to help but only for him to kill Dumbledore. And Harry, you know, he doesn't have all the information, so he assumes Snape has turned. I mean, the whole audience will assume Snape turned. You know, Dumbledore's begging. You know, you don't know what's going on. Why his hand like that? It wasn't going to spread. And Dumbledore dies and falls in this beautiful, like, slow-motion, dreamlike image to his death. You know, we talk about the value of your soul and losing one soul. Hogwarts has now lost its soul because uh, Bellatrix immediately sends up the dark mark, which she said is when the Death Eaters have performed a murder nearby, that's their calling card, and they proceed to trash the place. They trash the, the Great Hall. Hagrid's hut is blown up. But you see Malfoy's face too. 
as they're doing this they're having a great time but malfoy looks so pained to see this school that it has been his home for the past few years like you know maybe it's not home for him like it's home for harry but he's still spent a significant amount of years there and he looks so pained watching them destroy it watching this actually play out even though he's been working towards this all year it's another interesting thing because you know in the past Draco's like lying to Harry and to his friends like oh this place has gone to the dogs you know like he hates Hogwarts and Dumbledore's leadership but now he sees Dumbledore's fall and this place literally being torn apart and he can't stand it like it's like it's really upsetting him but he'll go along because he does not want to step out of line right so he the Death Eaters and Snape you know are walking off the campus um after killing Dumbledore and Harry follows them he's like I will not let them get away with this and he's specifically going after Snape for betraying or apparently betraying Dumbledore he trusted you and of course he Harry tries to use Septum Sempra his newly learned curse on Snape and Snape's like you can't use that on me I'm the one who invented it I'm the half-blood prince and that's all you fucking get of that I'm sorry but like that's all you get is the, that Snape is the half-blood prince that is not enough especially when it's the title of the movie I'm sorry go on well it's a cool reveal I feel the way it's revealed is very underwhelming it's like yeah I'm the half-blood prince like oh your only experience was the movie it feels doesn't feel like it was built up enough while that book was very helpful to Harry throughout the year I feel like there wasn't enough to, you know, make that a uh, really like groundbreaking reveal. I like I just didn't feel like uh, blown away by it. So Harry is knocked out and his wand is knocked away by Snape, and then f- finds everyone in the courtyard, you know, around Dumbledore's body. Harry goes up to the body and he cries. And it's interesting that Ginny is the one to physically comfort him. McGonagall starts the the lights in the sky. Not only as a lament to Dumbledore, but to remove the dark mark from the sky. And even though Hogwarts is under control of the Death Eaters next year, at least they can have one more moment where of peace, you know, to bury Dumbledore, to give him that moment he deserves. It's like earth shattering for everyone there to see this. They thought Hogwarts was safe with Dumbledore and now Dumbledore is dead. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. And then you see next like a scene of the great hall and typically these movies end with the great hall with everybody having a feast and maybe it's not always having a good time i'm thinking about you know cedric in the last one but i mean sorry cedric in the fourth one but you know like that's where these movies end at the great hall is absolutely empty there's nothing it's everybody's just devastated and hogwarts is devastated as well and Harry knows what he has to do next. He knows that coming back for a seventh year is not going to be an option. He has to go out, finish Dumbledore's mission and go after these Horcruxes. And it's very similar to what I see in Lord of the Rings, like Aragorn thinking he's doing this mission alone. And Legolas and Gimli's like, no, we're going with you, laddie. That's so like Hermione and Ron's like, oh, you think you're going to, like, there's no way you're going to be able to do this on your own. Like, you, you need us. Like, we're going to join with you. Um... Like, that's the trio. They need to be together. The only way they're going to get through this is together. Harry is the main character, but he needs Hermione and Ron to get him through this. Not just for intelligence, but his companionship. He needs people with him to make it through this. And this is where they also reveal that the locket that they found was 
a fake. It had a letter from R.A.B. in it. Um, Regulus Black was briefly mentioned in the beginning, but not enough for it to register with anybody. And Harry's so upset because he's like, it's all for nothing, all of it. And I mean, in his eyes, they wouldn't have been where they were if they hadn't gone on that mission. So, you know, perhaps he feels like if they hadn't done that, Dumbledore would still be alive, whatever. I don't think it was all for nothing because I think it led them on a different path. But Harry is just destroyed at this point. And you're right, he does need his friends. It hasn't been Harry that solved everything this entire time. He's taken a large role in it, but he's had help from his friends and that's been part of his success. So he's needed that. R.I.B. is like a surprise ally who discovered Voldemort's uh, Horcrux plot early on. So they'll have to figure out about this person in part seven. One beautiful thing about the end of this film is you see Fox again. It's like, where was Fox? Who's, you know, Dumbledore's bird, his, his phoenix. And that you, for a second, I thought, wait, does Fox show up in the last story? But then you see Fox flying away. So it was like Dumbledore's spirit leaving. I just love that, that the last shot was the three of them watching Fox fly away. Um, you know, it's a parting of a great, you know, legend in their era. And now they have to do things on their own. And that's the end of Harry Potter and the Hapla Prince the movie. So who was your notable character this time around? So there's a couple people I was mulling around. I had a feeling it could be this person before we shot, and it was. I was I was really surprised that, like, even though I knew it, it, it would be hit, like, I was shocked that I actually ended up choosing this person. But I chose Draco Malfoy. I love the idea of leveling up just annoying bully in Harry's life who wasn't part of the main plot. He was always either a nuisance or a red herring for the bigger threat. And now... His main mission was to kill Dumbledore. Um, and you can see he struggles with his mission because his heart's not in it. You know, he's ultimately, I can't say a good person, but he's not a truly evil person. And this deals it into the theme, I'm thinking, the value of your own soul and the price of his soul to kill somebody else, to follow orders, to, to kowtow to Lord Voldemort. He couldn't do it. He tried to convince himself he couldn't do it. In a sense, he was a coward, but a coward in a good way. He knew something was wrong, and he could not follow through with that. So his soul was saved in a sense. And I do appreciate this internal struggle he has to go through and all these weak attempts to kill Dumbledore that fail and how he has to evade everyone. I feel like he's almost like Harry in a sense in this book. He's ostracized himself from everyone. He has to be alone in the sense that Harry had to be alone in other chapters of this series. So I like the focus on him. I know there's other characters. If they got the focus, that would have been even better. But I feel like they gave Draco his due in this story. Hun, what about you? Who is your notable character? So I don't have a notable character. Whoa! Breaking the rules. Go ahead. No, I don't. I'm not breaking the rules. These the rules are to pick a notable character, and I don't think anybody stood out enough. I disagree with you on Draco. I see where they wanted to go with him and how they were attempting to do that, but I don't think that they were successful in that. You see him in scenes crying or putting apples and birds in a cabinet. That wasn't enough of the inner struggle that he had to go through. And of course, you know, knowing more from the book, like I, I, I can fill in the blanks. 
but I don't think they showed it on screen enough and it's been a very long time since I've actually seen this movie so watching it again and thinking about like who I wanted to choose as my notable character nobody stood out enough to me like even Dumbledore he had a bigger role in this but I think they moved far too quickly with the story. They didn't show how much he investigated Tom Riddle's past in order to find the answer to take him down. Harry, you picked up on the suspicions of him, but it was so much more that they could have done there. I thought they like very gently tapped it and that wasn't enough and then he was like sort of pining after Ginny and these but it just felt like they needed to stick that in so that we all understood that they were going to be in a relationship together Hermione was just angry all the time I get it I do I felt the anger for her too but she didn't offer any real help or information or skill here this time around even Slughorn you know he, he's the new a new teacher came in this year he was a little bit more developed, but I don't think it was enough. I think they could have done more to show what he's after, his collection, his slug club meetings and why he's going. We saw two slug club meetings and we saw him shut Harry down after that. And like there could have been a lot more depth, I think, explored there. And I don't even freaking want to talk about Ron, so we won't go there. I'll give honorable mention to the underappreciated underdog, Neville, who was the waiter at the slug club party, and that was pretty funny. But there's not one person that stood out to me enough in this movie to call them my notable character. Okay. <laughs> so I'm assuming this is your least favorite of the stories. That's a fair assumption. It might be mine. You know, I do appreciate this story more after looking at it for this recording, but um, it could still end up being my last place. Uh, I still think Draco is my favorite. I, I do appreciate leveling up a character who is like a one very one-note villain for this longest time, making him something else, someone who's really struggling with his humanity, and it plays into the soul, plays into the theme I think this story has is the value of one's soul. Are you willing to take a life to appease somebody else, or in Voldemort's case, create a Horcrux? Becoming obsessive with a mission at the cost of one's own life. I do think Dumbledore even plays with the, the value of the soul because he's willing to sacrifice himself and Harry for this mission. You can see, I don't know what happened with that ring, but uh, it, it nest with him and it was slowly killing him. Like his soul was being destroyed. Um, and he knew that his, his life was ending. So it was very important for him that he lay his life down so Harry could proceed. The unbreakable vow, you know, like you're putting your soul on the line to make, to do this, whatever task it is. Like now a mission is more important than the morality of backing out of something that's maybe not ethical. When you make a vow, when you sign yourself away to something, your actions are now dictated based off of this vow you made. So you have to act in terms to that vow versus your own soul, your own heart's desire and, you know, intuition. And at the very end, the soul and spirit of Hogwarts is taken. You can see that slowly happening by the way they shot this film, the lighting and the, the desaturation, the earthy tones of the, all the images. The soul of Hogwarts is lost. You know, Snape apparently gave his soul away, you know, by killing Dumbledore. Dumbledore was losing his soul. His hand was rotting away. We know Voldemort gave his soul away so he can preserve himself through the Horcruxes. 
And the whole point of this, the whole big struggle in this film was Draco fighting for his own soul. So I just love seeing that through many characters and even the character of Hogwarts, the building being destroyed. So I just love that through line there. Very well said. I like your interpretation of the theme in this movie. So, hun, one last question before we close. Plot or popcorn? I was torn at first. And honestly, like most of my notes were pretty on the positive, optimistic side. But once I got to the end and I'm like, wait a minute, we're missing a lot of pieces, especially the Half-Blood Prince piece of this. I was interested in this. It kept my attention. However, it was definitely the funniest of all the movies. It had the right amount of humor, rom-com feel at times where it was needed, but I don't think that the characters had the development they needed. They definitely could have done more with Draco. Definitely with Snape. We didn't even get to see him teach defense against the dark arts. He's the fucking half-blood prince and he barely had a part in the story. And, and I really think that that influences my decision. Even the book. Whether or not maybe Snape had a part in this, the book was very minor in all of this. And that is part of the title of the movie. So I definitely think it should have played a bigger role. And I think I'm very unsatisfied with this movie. I have a lot of feelings about it, but I'm I'm popcorn this time around. Broke the streak. Sorry. How about you? Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, maybe it's because I haven't been able to experience all the books. And I feel like the way you're feeling about Half-Blood is the way a lot of people feel about Goblet that I've heard of. But that's my personal favorite, so I don't know what you want me to say there. But I'm going to go with plot again on this one. Um, I think it's an underappreciated movie, even by me. I love that Harry and Draco's, like, fight, like, upping, you know, like, there's a more reason for them to fight here. Because even in Order of the Phoenix, like, Harry gets upset at Draco for saying some shit. And Ron's like, calm down, it's just Draco. And it's like, you expect him to say it at this point. But now there's more of a reason for them to fight. Dumbledore being brought down, not just with his death, but when he's drinking that dark water, like he's so defeated. Uh, he's seemingly submitted to his fate. Voldemort's presence, even though he wasn't in this movie, he dictates the actions of everyone. I really love Slughorn's inclusion, mostly for comedy. I do like the piece about him being ashamed about giving Voldemort that information. It's haunted him so much he's tried to hide it from others. I think weak points for me were the love triangle and all the love potion stuff. I know it's good comedy, but I just, I would rather skip that part if I were to watch this movie again. And the, the attack of the burrow felt really out of place. It, I don't think it did anything for the story. It felt like just something to do in the middle along with the love story. So, like, this middle part of the film really is lacking for me. I don't know what... The, they cut out so much, but then they put this in. I don't know. Maybe it's... They wanted to inject some humor and some action scenes, but these two parts really didn't work for me. But it's still a plot for me. Um, I, I'm glad I finally can appreciate this story along with the other Harry Potter stories. And I'm glad to finish it up with our two-part Deathly Hallows review. Yeah. I guess it was bound to happen that we'd have a difference of opinion on something. So, yeah, so stay tuned next week for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 1 that will be released. Don't forget to subscribe if you want to be notified when the new episodes come out. We would be so appreciative if you rate and review these episodes if you like them. And we'll be back next week for more. That sounds great. I can't wait. See you guys. Bye. Bye.